I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, man, these Brazilians are pasty. outside that much and when they are outside it is sometimes a a fantasy sequence here's another fact though mm-hmm. peter and i don't know if you know this um you go well i'm surprised you know it's brazil there's so many pasty people zero percent of this film takes place in brazil <laughs> it takes place somewhere somewhere i mean i guess that is true it's a great call out i don't know for sure me excluding brazil specifically yeah <laughs> um when they they give a whole world, it could be is potentially unfair. So that's a good call out. You know check, how in, check my bias. You know how in Starship Troopers, another movie that takes place in a um, fascist dictatorship dystopia, um, mm-hmm. the 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 lead character's name is Johnny Rico, and it's played by yeah. Casper Van Dien. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's like sort of an in joke, like he's from Buenos Aires, and most of the people we see from Buenos Aires are white. Not to say that South Americans can't be white, but you know that's part. They're making a point of that. Um, part of the joke of that is that um, these fascists have have so colonized South America that now there's like so many like white people that have moved there that it's essentially like you know. It's like Arizona, New Mexico counties yeah. that like are basically all white people, and and the native people are are, are outnumbered. Um, yeah, more than thought, that, they're, they people in Arizona and Texas famously wonder why there's not all white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, um, they get very frustrated when you remind them. Hey, um, hey, why isn't there more people like me who, uh, <laughs> you know, in my in my in my native uh, native land, Mexico. <laughs> Why are there not more people that look like me? A place that if I stand outside for 15 minutes, I turn into a tomato. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but, the, the, but I, for years, projected that, because this movie, I saw it when I was like 12, for years I projected that this was that scenario where um, 
you know, Eurasia or Europa or whatever the the fake fascist country in this that's supposed to be the, you know, the the, the 1984 uh, country in this, that they had somehow taken over South America and that this was like, you know, they had turned Brazil. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't know it was the song until like probably well after I saw this movie. (laughs) And the reason is because children are extremely literal. Yeah. Um, so when I was 13, I was like, yeah, well, it has to be that the movie has something to do with Brazil, despite the fact that I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty sure there's no people of Hispanic origin in the entire movie. Yeah, I think it's um, just all white people who have uh, never been outside or uh, uh, just just English people. <laughs> yes. It's always, it's um, always rainy. The but ca- the song is gorgeous. Um, the song's great. And the song has like arguably I know I'm totally undercutting us introducing the show, but we'll I really want to I really want to get this out here. Um, the song is has arguably as interesting of a story as the movie that we're gonna cover today, Brazil, and the song is Acarea de uh, do Brasil. Um Oh, I thought it was uh Brazil uh print parentheses remix <laughs> it, uh, it, but yeah, yeah we'll talk yeah, brazil dub dubstep remix dubstep remix yeah yeah uh brazil but it sounds like all-star by smash mouth <laughs> uh but where we love to watch we're a movie podcast we pick a theme we do movies over the course of that month around that theme and if we remember we compare and contrast we're our last week of fuck ronald reagan month again disclaimer extraordinarily important we said it every time did we say it every week because we like saying fuck Ronald Reagan that's for history to decide because this is fuck Ronald Reagan month a sentiment that I'm not saying that Aaron Armstrong co-host of we love to watch or Pete Moran co-host of we love to watch whole I'm saying the movies we're covering project this kind of a fuck Ronald Reagan sometimes very directly sometimes you know fuck things he supported like Margaret Thatcher and capitalism like the movie we're doing today so that is the movie's perception separately and parallel Aaron and Peter's take if you're asking us candidly you want us to be transparent and transparency is critical when you have an audience that listens to you occasionally (laughs) We also believe, yeah, fuck Ronald Reagan, fuck Margaret Thatcher, and in general, to be honest, just fuck capitalism. Um, Peter, give a rebuttal. <laughs> I think that Margaret Thatcher occupies a special place um, in uh, in history, such that, similar to Ronald Reagan, that if somebody in Year of Our Lord 2022 is still defending either of these people or Winston Churchill, obviously from a different era, but these sort of highly regressive people who yeah. um, their conservative supporters created a myth-making campaign around, if those people still fucking chomp on to that, that myth-making campaign, if they drink the Kool-Aid or drink the english breakfast tea um i don't know what are they poison in england um you know that person is never to be trusted it's actually kind of nice to when you're traveling abroad or you meet new people from from uh the uk it's very good to know that you can't trust somebody if they say a single nice thing about margaret thatcher well it also just means that like I, i mean i truly believe this this sounds mean but i think it's true that if you have positive things to say about margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan and don't realize how destructive they were to our to the to the the eras that they lived and ruled through or now I legitimately believe that your your entire knowledge of history civics 
uh, social studies, whatever else, stops and ends at a textbook you you read in sixth grade. Like there's there's more than enough out there at this point that you should have came into contact with the fact that oh these people aren't that great. But um, but yeah, you know who else thinks that these people are not that great? Uh, a little guy by the name of Terry Gilliam uh, when he made 1985's Brazil, which from his perception is and his take in making this movie was uh, if 1984 the George Orwell book was someone in the 40s looking forward at what he imagined a fascist dystopian uh, 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 future to be. And that Brazil, what he set out to make was what he called 1984's 1984. So this wasn't someone looking into the future at what uh, what terrors await us. This is him looking through the prism of George Orwell's future through the society that he saw emerging and what uh, that version that Orwell would do if he knew about what it was what life was actually like in 1984. So so that's where this movie comes from. We're gonna start with a little disclaimer. So Terry Gilliam uh, sucks really hard. Uh, he's got terrible opinions. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about actually how we have a differing um, – or I say we uh, – from our memory, the Battle of Brazil, which is very much worth talking about um, before we before we get into the movie, uh, that he is not the, the, the hero that we remember or, or full hero that we remember as we revisited the documentary and the story behind that. Uh, but, he, you know, he's kind of positioned himself – we called it, you know, Bill Maher, Matt Groening disease, I think, at one point where – you know, someone who has, positions himself as a one man against the system sometimes stops taking any sort of criticism or growing and learning. And Terry Gilliam is very much a uh, – they try – you know, he's anti-Me Too. He's ansel quote-unquote cancel culture. Huge defender of uh, – He's probably got some skeletons in his closet. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, huge defender of uh, – of, of, Unprompted. Know. I don't trust women is probably not a person you want to associate no. with. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. So, so yeah, I mean, Terry Gilliam sucks. We we don't need to rehash all that because we did Time Bandits, which was the first Terry Gilliam movie we did about two and a half years ago. Uh, and we, we had this discussion. He's only sucked more since then, especially as it relates to his defense of Johnny Depp and everything else. But, I mean, our stance was pretty clear on the Time Bandits episode that Terry Gilliam, as a human being, as a person, uh, sucks a lot of balls. Um, and uh, just terrible, terrible opinions, terrible thought. He's an old man who uh, a boomer that acts like it. Um, yeah, we don't need we don't need to rehash around and yeah, eventually came back around and became the conservative that he hated so much in his youth. Yeah, which we've actually talked about. I mean, we talked a little bit about that in Repo Man stuff like that. That this idea of like. The, the A lot of the people who were very anti-Reagan, um, you know, and we talked about this in the Bill Maher episode, that idea of like th- there was a, an alignment with the idea of like, oh, these people are OK with saying fuck. So I'm uh, I'm against, you know, capitalists and Republicans and all that kind of stuff. And then somehow that shifted into, you know, these people aren't letting me say, uh, you know, slurs. How dare they? And so, um, so yeah, Terry Gilliam's of that ilk. He sucks. If you don't want to watch this because you don't want to watch Terry Gilliam movies, uh, uh, you do you. That's you should draw your own line in the sand. Uh, and uh, Terry Gilliam is definitely rightfully deserving of a lot of ire. Again, I think we'd have a longer discussion about it, but we did discuss it all in Time Bandits. And if you want to listen to that, uh, go back. I think that's a good episode uh, in general. Uh, but I mean, we should by be... By the way, he's the sort of person, the sort of ire 
ireful person right now where we're like we'll co- we're, we'll cover his movies like he did make some of my favorite movies of oh time, yeah including this one this one is like a top five for me um 12 monkeys is probably like a top 10 maybe yeah um fisher king is is an incredible movie i wonder i i genuinely wonder um how those performances age with, with given the fact that how many years have passed yeah but like he's still uh, as i mean time bandits and and adventures uh, of of uh baron munchausen i mean the, the for a while all he made is like movies i love including yeah. obviously the monty python stuff too yeah yeah and he he's still i mean john cleese is also we talked i believe we talked about that in tom bandit time bandits how well like, the thing about john cleese is that the john cleese in the time bandits episode he was posting a lot about like how human empathy is important and we were we were actually i think holding up john cleese as a good contrast to aging gracefully and understanding that empathy is important and i gotta tell you <laughs> never trust a boomer i mean yeah because yeah. he took a turn as well i believe yeah and um uh, christ um but yeah so never never elevate people but as of the the, the date we're recording this june 29th 2022 um we are willing to cover terry gilliam movies because he's he's mostly just like a, a big fucking idiot as opposed to uh, a harmful piece of yeah. shit and in, in terms of physical action yeah um well eventually and, we'll and we've eventually hit our harmful personal if, shit if quota could. with mel gibson movies yeah yeah I'm not saying that we have like actually a firm line in the sand, but I'm just saying like if 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 Terry Gilliam uh, more shit comes out about him between now and then, just know at this point in time, we mostly just know that he's reckless and stupid. Yeah, and he's a yeah he's someone who does ha- has a lot of terrible opinions, and you can firmly ignore him, and also you can firmly ignore most movies he's made in the last uh, twenty years as well, because Tideland is terrible, Zero Theorem is terrible. Um, I haven't seen The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, but I don't think people like it. Um, Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus. That's actually okay. I like that one. I didn't really like it. Um, I mean. <laughs> It's not. I mean, but you can you can safely ignore it. I mean, again, you can safely ignore all these. Like, draw your own personal line in the sand. But if you're yeah. like me, if, being if, like Brothers Grimm is a fun little movie. Is yeah, not, I like Brothers Grimm. It, it, that's not. But that's not me being like you have to see Brothers Grimm the way I am. Genuinely about like Brazil, Twelve Monkeys, Fisher King. These are movies you like have to see. Yeah, I think they're they're can they are canon film classics. And I'm yeah. sure you've had Brazil isn't at the bro film bro film dork level that say uh you know fight club or, or whatever is that or seven yeah. but it's kind of there where like you can ask a lot of college it's in the it's in the, the david lynch Cronenberg, like one yeah. one cousin removed bro film canon it's um, it's also a movie that multiple dads have told me is like their favorite movie or one of their favorite movies because like even if you're like a liberal dad who's still pissed off at nixon you know yeah. Many years later, or you're a conservative dad who thinks that you're fighting the system or whatever, but when really you're stoking it up. Regardless, multiple dads have told me that Brazil is like, well, it's one of the best movies of all time. Yeah, and you go to Dad Con every year, so there's the Brazil movie. There's the Brazil panel every year. So, when, like when you're saying multiple dads have told you, that's a that's a dad con sanction. And it's five <laughs> of them up on the stage, you know, with their little mics, and they're like, uh, yeah, here's my thoughts on Brazil. Well, I put in my time with the dad community. I earned their trust. Uh, I consider myself an ally to the dad community. Thank you. Uh, I mean, as a as a dad. <laughs> I mean, you can you can. I I'm in a lot of communities. I'm a dad. I'm a father of daughters. 
you, I mean, a lot of important communities uh, that the uh, t- two main stars of Goodwill Hunting used to deflect any criticism of them ever. As an example, love it. I'm just glad you're not from Boston. Um, the, uh, yeah, uh, I, so- I, I just, I, I just uh, also want to note that I think you're one of the good ones. When it comes to dads. Yeah, I mean, because, Peter, I just want to be clear, because you said I'm one of the good ones, that also means any future behavior that I do is uh, above reproach. Because I already one- stamped this episode, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> once, once you've been solidified as a father of daughter and an official dad, that anything else you do can be learned, seen as a growing exercise. It yeah. doesn't matter your age. Look at the Trump children. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I forget that some of them are dads. I mean, some of them are. I think they're all dads. I mean, except Baron. Oh, are they? Yeah. Well, yeah, not Baron. I mean, there's only two. The two. They're not that debauched. The, yeah. Um, but anyway. He just has a weird little lab where his little, little mini Barons are running around. I mean, who knows what's going on there, Peter? I mean, I'm sure it could be a really – there could be a very terrifying underbelly. Uh, you seen Venture Brothers? You know how there are those kids come from? Um, yeah, little boys from Brazil thing going on somewhere around there, uh, which is great. Great reference because that is a part of the title of the movie that we're doing today or a longer version of the title of the movie we're doing today. Uh, so, yeah, but I think, Peter, part of the reason this is in that kind of like – peripheral film bro canon is because i mean i i remember the first time i watched this movie and it it was like you know catching up on gilliam and like i think i'd read about it i i'd got a book like in my in my high school like burgeoning film love where i had a lot more opportunity to watch things that i hadn't when i was younger or interests that were expanding beyond just like whatever was at the theaters and trying to catch up on understanding both what the you know the film canon of the time was and like and and spending time to catch up on it i read about this movie in um this book called the thousand best movies of all time. The is a New York times thing. And it, um, it was like a reference book and just, it didn't have them ranked. It was just like, uh, alphabetically the thousand best movies of all time. It came out like, is that unrelated to thousand movies you need to see before you die? Completely unrelated. It was like, it was, it was all. So what was cool about it is that I don't know who like selected. It was like the, the New York times critics at the time selected. Here's our thousand favorite movie or best movies of all time. And then it had the contemporary reviews that ran in the New York times for all of them in there. So it was super cool because like you have movies like psycho that has a bad write up. For you know, in as the review for the New York Times that obviously sense the the critics made that so a uh, great book. I literally I still have it. It is I've been meaning to buy another copy just for uh, for fun because it it literally has pages out of it. The back cover's gone. I like I mean I wrote in it. I like ordered stuff. I mean I was obsessed with trying to what watch a document it. yeah and it was it was um it was a present from friends that like knew that i would constantly like try to recommend movies or we'd have movie watching parties and so a few of my friends when i was like a sophomore in high school i think got it for me um with the idea that uh that the deal was that i had to watch all of them at some point i i have not i have not achieved that i'm sorry ann i have not achieved that <laughs> that goal yet um but uh but so, I mean, I was reading about Brazil and I had, you know, fallen in love with Monty Python and I think it references like – but I hadn't, I hadn't really got into like watching all of his movies besides 12 Monkeys, which I saw when it came out in 1995 and loved it. I'm glad um, you didn't start with Jabberwocky. 
Uh, no, I've never seen Jabberwocky. I've tried to start Jabberwocky twice and I can't. I've never made it more than 15 minutes. It's like, what if Monty Python had that same aesthetic but but was not fun or funny? <laughs> that's that's my Jabberwocky take, at least, from someone who's, on, who's never finished it. Um, so when I read about Brazil, and I, I love the idea of dystopian science fiction. I've talked how much I love science fiction or that idea of like speculative fiction. Like – I was so entranced by just what this movie could be. It sounded unreal. It sounded like a movie that couldn't exist. And that was – or had was nothing like I had ever seen. Like, you know, and that that's the, part of the fun thing of becoming a cinephile. Like, you know, in your junior high or high school, especially if you like – you weren't raised in families that were like introducing you to all these like – classics and different types of film and stuff like that is that you 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 get I, the reason why i think david lynch and cronenberg and brazil and stuff like that really blows people's mind it's not just that they're good movies it's that they seem like movies you didn't know were possible to make like they they are the first of a certain kind of you know i didn't know you were allowed to do that movies and so reading about brazil in this book gave me that impression and then when I saw it, it lived up to everything. And also like it felt crazy. Like this movie came out in 1985. Why am I not seeing all movies that are like this? Like how is this like this weird artifact from 13 years ago or whenever I saw it and still seems like nothing I've ever seen before? Um and so, yeah, like I get why you become obsessed with this type of movie and it becomes an early favorite for a lot of people just because it might be your first exposure to the fact that movies can do something like this. Yeah, yeah. I saw it when I was in junior high. My first exposure to it um, was through the IMDb message boards. So that's where I learned to post. And I really recommend – um, if you need an apprenticeship on, on a place to learn to post, find somewhere that in about 10 years time will be utterly obliterated from the planet's surface um, and that there'll be no record of it. Um, love that there's absolutely no record of any of my posts anywhere on the Internet. I assume even the Wayback Machine has been deleted uh, to help me out with this task. Um, but uh, I heard about it while i was researching like movies about dystopias basically so the, the the thing you're touching on like i i was i was into oh i read 1984 i loved it i didn't form any weird political opinions about it um <laughs> i just thought it was a really did you end up walking away from it thinking like what this is primarily about is that uh the government can't impose its will on private corporations and it should yeah be to... what i came away from it is that uh hillary hint uh, hillary clinton uh was should not get into the uh, oval office <laughs> i know i know it's sort of pat to uh to do the like conservatives don't understand 1984 but there's nothing funnier than like the government needs to do something about Twitter kicking me off its platform. This is like 1984. It's like, no, what you're describing is like, right, wrong, or otherwise. What you want to happen sounds like 1984. You have, no, you yeah, have it completely backwards. They have, they have no concept of – sorry. They, they hold no concept of what the First Amendment means. I'm assuming the think tank people that come up with their talking points know exactly what the intention of the First Amendment is and they just yeah. don't care. Um, so – yeah, I saw a bunch of movies uh, in this time period, like the 1984 movie <laughs> that um, Br uh, Gilliam says um, he wanted to call this movie 1984 and a half. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, then, obviously, the 1984 movie came out, and he was like, yeah, that guy's a bastard. That director's a bastard. He, he, he stole my wind. Um, so he... Uh, uh, I saw that, and I watched Logan's Run, and I watched uh, THX uh, 1138. I watched Christ. I mean, yeah, like I, I, I bootlegged Battle Royale. Maybe, maybe Brazil and these kind of movies all pushed. Maybe the book 1984 pushed me into a film dorkdom because I saw Battle Royale after bootlegging it through some random website, some sketchy website that someone on IMDb message boards told me was legit. Um, and then uh, from there, I was like, I have to see all these like Japanese crime movies. And that, like, I, I maybe because I think I saw Battle Royale before I saw Seven Samurai. Yeah, I think I'm putting some pieces together now. I think 1984 might have kicked off just like me chasing dystopia movies. Yeah. Being like, I don't want to wait for them to remake battle royale in america yeah I, I need to get it right now um and i saw this and it was something that my parents had a a vhs player in the basement tv and i could kind of like if i was smart and like knew what to do i, I could like record whatever i wanted on the sundance channel or on hbo or yeah. whatever that they had you know whatever packages they had upstairs i also had downstairs and i recorded this on vhs off of the sundance channel and it must have been that and i showed it to friends and i was like and i showed it to ryan bowl and i was like this movie is insane like it's half like a fantasy movie and it's half like 1984 but it's really funny yeah and the score is insane and it's really pretty like i i remember showing this to friends and then eventually like um eventually it was many years later i got the dvd but but in that interim i had like just shown the movie to whoever i could because it just happened to pop up on sundance channel in a magic sort of way where yeah. i really wanted to see this movie and then i turned it on some friday night and it was like halfway over and you're like oh, i'll be able to get to that again yeah sundance. yeah, yeah. <laughs> when they, when they get a rights to a movie they keep going i get it too because like after i saw this on vhs and started like reading about it online and reading reviews and stuff like that like i, I there was the criterion three disc set that i was like there was 60 bucks and 60 bucks and i really sound like an old man i get it but like 60 bucks I, when i was probably making you know five fifteen an hour minimum wage is a lot of money and yeah. i was like man I, I got to get this set. Like, I really want to um, – I wasn't entirely sure if I was watching the full cut. I probably wasn't. I probably was watching the one 133-minute cut on on VHS from what I could tell. So, I, And then I knew that there was these other versions. And I think um, – and yeah, I, I showed it to friends. I always felt like it was a little hard for people to get into. And then if they did, it was rewarding. But it wasn't like some movies I would show people where I feel like they were like immediately – hooked i think a lot of people were like i don't know what the fuck this is and maybe maybe that i mean from it sounds like a lot of the test screenings and reviews at the time it came out too that was generally the audience reaction too so that that likely uh continued but i think the other reason peter that this was such an easy thing for people like you know film film school people or cinephiles and in their burgeoning cine, cinephilia to, to gravitate around is, is, is the story behind it. So if you don't know um, the, the quick version of it, and we're going to discuss a little bit about the documentary and, and the story of this. They were documentaries based on the book as well, the, the Battle 
the Battle of Brazil about the making of this movie. But, you know, Terry Gilliam comes off of Monty Python. Time Bandits is a huge, huge hit. He has this script that he's written for uh, Brazil. Uh, and uh, and Universal ends up by giving him $9 million to make it. Uh, 20th Century Fox gives him uh, $6 million uh, for the international rights and to, to make it as a $15 million budget, blah, blah, blah. He goes, he goes through all those things and uh, he makes it and then immediately starts fighting with the studio. Uh, we'll go into the details of that um, in, in a second here, but he had to really fight to get it released. And so even that, that New York Times book, Peter, which had that contemporary review, it like it talked about that. The first couple paragraphs were about like the movie that was fighting to get released and then, oh boy, it's something special. Like it, you know. So like immediately in my both my introduction to this movie and hearing the description of it, it's immediately linked with this idea that it's almost some sort of like um censored artifact and like this thing of this pure art object that literally was too pure and too bright and like but because it was so good and so powerful it it, it escaped out and that kind of story of like Terry Gilliam sticking to his guns and then re-editing into a shitty version and everything else. It's an easy story for someone who's 19 years old or 18 years old, I think, to gravitate towards and feels like art is important. Artists should never be should never be censored. And like, here's the studio system. And the reason I don't I haven't seen more movies that are as good as Brazil is because, you know, they they tried to keep Brazil down and stuff like that in the first place. And so that's why I've gone 15 years of my life and not seen a more Brazil type movies. It's because they I was barely allowed to see Brazil in this form and stuff like that. So it. It's that's that's a story that's very easy for for a you know a very very I think impassioned high schooler and college students to 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 rally around as well. Yeah, yeah, especially yeah, you're a burgeoning film fan, right? And you hear about the that that there's a producer battle going on between a a auteur director, a brilliant visionary, and um, people on TV that back him up are like. The, these LA LA film critics and Robert De Niro did like a rare interview to back up Gilliam. Like the cast came out and backed him up. Like all these other people you respect came and backed him up publicly. And like, it's a very convenient narrative to be like, this is, this is a horrible business interest stepping on uh, the little guy. And even Gilliam admits in in an interview with the Battle for Brazil, I, I assume the documentary was made in like the early 90s. Um, yeah, late yeah late 90s. It was, yeah. or mid, no, midnight. It was made for the Laserdisc. Ah, um, uh, yeah, there release. we go. So I think it was 96. Um, how crazy is it that like Criterion basically created special features? Yeah, I know. Uh, and they still, and no one else got good at them except for like Criterion and Arrow. Yeah, my uh, my high school girlfriend um, is the only person I knew, and their parents had a huge laserdisc collection and a ton of Criterion stuff. Um, this might be I might be confusing it with another movie because I'm not sure if this got released on Criterion. But I mean, I I remember I watched T two, which I think was <laughs> at their house for the first time on these these huge this big laserdisc that I was. They're like, so cool. Yeah, yeah. they just look like big CDs. I have one. I have I have one because I wanted the to frame the, the sleeve. I the wall art. It. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to frame the Wolfen album or uh, album oh yeah cover because it's so cool looking. Yeah. Um, but uh, 
Gilliam admits as much in the in the mid '90s interview for that laser disc uh, that you know it's very easy for people to jump on the side of the little guy against the big Hollywood producers, but the story is more complicated than that, and the story doesn't necessarily make Gilliam come off in the best terms, especially when the initial ask for weeks and weeks and weeks was for Gilliam to cut seven minutes of the movie to from two twenty two to two fifteen. So that he could, yeah. he could show more showings of his movie a night um, and that everybody like your movie could reach a broader audience if we can squeeze more showings in. Yeah. So that's the thing, like rewatching the documentary for the first time since I got the criterion, like it's sort of it's actually sort of genius the way, the way that Gilliam kind of gets the audience or, you know, the storytellers on his side, which is. He – they talk about, you know, all these business people are talking about we wanted to be in the Gilliam business. The script was great. Time Bandits was great. You know, it was profitable. Like, that. you know, that is our business. We, we gave him money. We bought the rights because we thought it would be profitable. And he says, so we did all the stuff and they were very supportive and we, we you know, delivered the movie on, on time. But, yeah, nine minutes – or 11 minutes over the the agreed upon contractual time. They had said that you can get final cut, which is insane. Most filmmakers don't get final cut. Um, and he, he they gave without, him t- without fighting for it, by the way. Yeah, that was an that was a agreed upon thing from the star. And yep. Yeah, the number I have is seven minutes. Um, they, they, yep, because they, they wanted he, to cut seven minutes. Yep, yep, seven minutes because it was he contractually had to deliver a two hour and fifteen minute movie, as you said, and mainly for because if not, it's a different pricing. They would have given him the rescue. Like, look, we would have given him a different budget if 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 we if we had had those negotiations because, as you said, they can't get in as many screenings, and that affects the way that we see a market. You know, it's, it's an art movie. It's a good art movie, but marketability, and you know, I. And, and and he – what's interesting is that – so he kind of has this thing where we were a couple minutes over and what's a, what's a few minutes between friends? We had made this great picture. And then he kind of moves on from it and that's like – that's the sentence that I gravitated towards um, when I was when I was younger and that, 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 that myth-making had come up around this. That like, so what? It's seven minutes difference. And obviously – you know, Peter, we're, we're, this may be obvious, like his movie, his version of the movie is fantastic. Um, th- there's no debate about that. But he immediately, after they say, well, hey, you have to deliver it under seven minutes. Like that was the agreement that we had. That's how you get Final Cut and everything else. He effectively then immediately said no and then stopped working with them. He stopped going to screenings. He started only going through his lawyer. He would still steal prints of this, the film and try to show it at college classes. And like he, he, he talks about needing to become a guerrilla marketer to get his movie out there and giving review copies and, um, you know, going on TV and stuff like that. And you realize, I think, a little bit more with some maturity. It's not like that, that necessarily like – whether whether it's right or wrong that there should be a contractual time <laughs> that movies need to be delivered by is is a different debate. What's clear here is that that was there was that time for a reason based on the budget that they had given him, based on the amount of screenings that they had. And the second they told him, "Hey, we need you to you know deliver what we agreed upon and what we gave you the money for," he effectively acted like a petulant child and said covered his ears, walked out, and refused to work with them anymore. 
Right? Like yeah. that's that's my sense of like Yeah, like I I'm 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 um <laughs> You know, it's it's it, it's not gonna make us any friends to uh, side with the, um, the the studio execs over <laughs> um, the you know famous auteur director. Um, but uh, the point is that <clears throat> he had made an agreement for a pretty healthy budget. Yeah, good for a niche art project. Yeah, that was supported by by the producers throughout the de- the development, and then when the, they didn't. <laughs> They didn't see the the movie until essentially it was done and they yeah. had a long cut of it and they were like, we don't really know what to do with this. Like they wanted to dump it. They wanted to take it away from him sooner. Um, and then they said, let's bring on this guy. Well, here's Dick what they Shine. said. They said before – well, you, you can talk through that. But it's very important. They said, look, you cut seven minutes from this and we – have you're in contract we will release we, we it to all on. the we, we will we release, release it to all the on. theaters that we said that we would like we're gonna follow the contract even if this isn't quite we're not quite sure what to do with it great movie or not not great movie and he said like knowing all like it's i think part of the reason it's insane a little bit to us peter is like the idea that you get final cut that they would have released it to not just limited release to but wide release to all these theaters the idea that he got this budget to make this this amazing art film and stuff like that feels like more than most filmmakers get anywhere close to today and all he had to do was trim seven minutes to be in contractual compliance so they could do two screenings a night yeah and and he's like no and don't get me wrong, for, like liter- th- I'm learning nothing from this process. I will back the the filmmaker over the director, or even if it, the filmmaker over the, the oh, yeah. producers in every future case, assuming the filmmaker's not obviously a monster. Um, <clears throat> but the, the 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 ask was the ask was a pretty modest ask for being able to play with studio money, right? Like, well, and also like on the a hundred percent, but also like. All movie. I mean, there's no exact time. These people might not like this, but like all movies have longer cuts, shorter cuts. Editors try different things and stuff like that. Like I do think the cut that we see is essentially a perfect movie. But if I saw a cut that was seven minutes shorter or even seven minutes longer, I would probably in probably think the same thing. Like no movie is like ordained on Mount Sinai. <laughs> That like this is the exact time it is. So I, I mean, I do understand. And editing enough. is filmmaking. Yeah, right? like, exactly. The, the 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 process is as much about um, culling what 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 uh, materials were produced uh, down to uh, a, a form and agreeing upon that form yeah. and saying, all right, this form is worthy of of being released. As it is about going and shooting the things. Obviously, yeah. one is way more expensive than the other. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. They're they're equally important endeavors. The the actually producing the footage versus uh, forming that footage into its 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 final whole, and the it, I, this is a fairly embarrassing admission. I love this movie. It's like one of my three favorite movies of all time. Are you telling me you couldn't sneak seven minutes from the like very long second act out? Well, yeah. The, I mean, that's the, the second thing. act is so long. I mean, yeah. That's I mean, that's the thing. Is like again, I. I I understand that he completed the project and was like I don't want to change it. But he also delivered a project that was he knew was out of uh, out of contract for all the reasons that he knew was out of contract. So, yeah, it it, it is definitely not a version of like the studio knows what's right and the studio does this, but I also just understand like he 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 
was had a lot of a lot of leeway. And he then refused and he was the one that was out of compliance. And then he refused to engage in any meaningful manner besides all of these shitty techniques. So the studio's like, well, technically he's out of contract. We don't have to release this right now, as it is. Like, and we don't really know what to do with it anyways. So now like he kind of gave them that path to be able to go, well, if he's not gonna edit anything and we're not gonna release it in the current format. Because we can only do one screening a night and we're never going to make our money back on this thing. Um, you know, what do we do next? Um, yeah. And so their next move is to bring on Sid Scheinberg, who I think in a lot of these stories and, and among like particularly like autorist film fans gets remembered as uh, this hack Hollywood producer jackass. And this guy is more of a lawyer than he is, you know, a creative voice. Sid Scheinberg was like. One of the people that brought up um, Steven Spielberg, like Sid Scheinberg was like was it, it, within the studio system, albeit uh, particularly within Universal Studios, albeit this is measured against all the money men and all the all the other producers. He was seen as somebody who would fight for filmmakers and fight for directors. When he says that in the documentary Battle for Brazil, like he's like, I consider myself a very director friendly producer. Um, when he does, when he says that, he's not bullshitting. Like yeah. that's that's his reputation. Um, many there's there's many directors on record, particularly like Steven Spielberg, who say like, "Oh, it's great." Like, um, and it's 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 tough because during the same time, Gilliam is also seeing his movie released in whatever form he fucking wants, uh, in being released in Europe. Um, doing way better than it will eventually do in the United States, um, making some money. His yeah, and, and people love it. The, the reviews are great. It's making money, yeah. which it should. It's a great movie. Yeah, yeah. It's doing yeah. everything it's yeah. supposed to do, right? Uh, and his producing partner, Arnon Milchin, uh, who's kind of handling more of the international distribution. Um, he's like, hey, like, don't let any of this shit <laughs> don't let any of the shit get in the way of us like releasing this movie internationally. Don't let any of the shit get in the way of us getting the movie out the door. But he's largely, you know, Gilliam's Gilliam's guy throughout this process because um, they're both kind of eccentric types. Well, and there's and, a reason so many movies that you you end up buying uh, have like an international cut that's longer because you know there was there was the the people who did international rights were usually less concerned about time than they were uh, for American audiences. Yeah, yeah. And he so Sid Scheinberg saw himself as coming in and he was going to be like a mediator between the producers who were just like, we're either not releasing this movie or we're going to take this away from him and cut him. And at this point, Gilliam had already decided, fuck the producers, I'm gone. So he like essentially never had a good working relationship with Sid Scheinberg. He never really was given a chance. And Sid, I think they basically never spoke <laughs> after a certain point. Yeah. Only, only through uh, threats and, and newspaper yeah. and, and threatening phone calls and through lawyers and, and through newspaper and through TV uh, appearances. Yeah, um, Terry Gilliam eventually took out a, a ad, a full page ad in Variety. Dear Sid Scheinberg, when are you going to release my film? Well, and, yeah, Gilliam. and then he went on uh, one of the late night talk shows. I forget which one with Robert De Niro. And they talked about how the studio won't release his film. And then he pulled out a picture of Sid Scheinberg. Um, and said, I don't have a problem with the studio. I have a problem with this one man. And pointed at the picture that he pulled out. 
Yeah. So also Terry Gilliam says some things in here that are, uh, I would say, uh, veiled anti-Semitic things. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's he's the, that... a Holocaust victim uh, to to him. Saying these things to Sid Sheinberg is like I would consider that, if not anti-Semitic, as close as you get without going. I mean, he, border, yeah, right? he says in the documentary when they, um, when when the studio won't let him play the film, and he's on the phone arguing with the lawyers for the college students that um, that um, what you know, this is like Nazi Germany. You by you know by not playing your movie. His I mean his exact quote is that there's six million Jews turning to ash because of you. Yeah, <laughs> which, which for, for uh, yeah, not not a great look. Yeah. So Sid saw himself before this. He saw himself and, and during most of this, he saw himself as like a mediator between the suits and, and Gilliam. That like I can come in and I can I can get you your seven minute cut. Um, and most of the producers essentially the 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 the, um the the story is is that they were playing hot potato like various producers were like all right i find i'll take it and then oh actually i don't want this shit and then pass it to another guy who would be like actually i don't want to deal with gilliam and sid sheinberg ended up being the public face of all this because sid was the guy who was just like fuck it i'm bringing in editors like we're gonna get this movie out and let's see if if gilliam comes to the table to to you know actually get his movie out and this is where the story starts to get um you know you start to get where 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 gilliam's coming from because the Cassid claimed to love the movie from his point of view, and I agree. I, I have no reason to not believe that. Sid had no reason to step in the middle of this fracas other than like building up political capital with his friends. Um, yeah. But but he was like, you cut a little bit of this movie, you make it more accessible. We're good. And then the 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 Love Conquers All cut the 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 myth of the Love Conquers All cut is completely irrespective of the reality. People are saying people said that the Love Conquers All cut was Sid Sheinberg stepping in and cutting this beautiful two and a half hour movie into a 90 minute movie. And that's, and that, you know, that's, that was Sid's intended cut. No, Sid shot for 215. And then at some point was like, all right, what about 205? Like once he started getting guys in the editing room, he was like, maybe we can do 205. And this is the part where like, you know, I don't endorse like that, that piece of it. Like, um, but like they had spent millions of dollars on this movie. Like, they wanted the movie to be seen. They wanted the movie to get public. Um, and there was a point where if Gilliam had cut it to 215 or if Gilliam had cut it himself to 205, uh, he could have had full final edit and he could have just walked away. Yeah, two, I mean, 215, seven, seven minutes. Yeah. And then later it became 205, which you get why he'd be pissed about that. Yeah. But like, um, the L.A. film critics stepped in the middle of this and in, in, in what I think is a pretty cool thing for a film organization to do, because I'm kind of on both sides here. I think Gilliam was being a jackass and blew up his career for, you know, very little, very little purpose. Um, but uh, the L.A. film critics step in and they at a private after a private screening at a gun club. Yeah. Um, they, because Gilliam kept, like you were saying, Gilliam kept stealing prints and, and screening it for college kids and fighting through lawyers and how much of the movie he could play. And if, if we play a clip of the movie, is it okay? And then the clip ended up being an entire run of the movie. Yeah. Um, and this LA Film Critics Association said, all right, we're going to make it film of the year. We're going to make Gilliam director of the year. And as, best, as, best it, screenplay. It won like all their major awards back at a yeah. time when it was, that was very meaningful. And it's an, an explicit political message that they were sending to the studios. Which was. Yeah. And um, 
the it is pretty cool is especially as um usc film school um ha- had uh connections with the, the studios because the studios basically paid for the usc film school programs um and the LA Film Critics Association considered themselves to have a good relationship with the with the studios, and both of them ended up in a situation where like they were kind of against the studios and on the side of Terry Gilliam, which ends up being like a very fun like rebel story. And well, yeah, well, and this, but what's so funny is the studios end up essentially being on his side too. They're like, well, we're not really happy with how everything went, but what he did do is create a buzz around. A movie that made it one I forget who, uh, the one of them says like it, essentially he created an environment that it was financially viable for us to release the film in its current form. And, you know, they say what something that under other circumstances probably would have made two to three million dollars and end up making, you know, 10, 11 million dollars in the United States box office because of the environment that. Terry Gilliam created by by making it this like uh, you know um, censored hidden object, and I don't think Terry Gilliam is self aware enough to have have known that from the beginning. No. But it would be pretty funny if in ten years, like you saw a picture of Terry Gilliam and and uh, Sid Sheinberg like shaking hands at, at some dinner or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Andy Kaufman and the wrestler. Yeah, where you're like, oh, well, they were buds the whole time. They were just like, they thought it would yeah. be fun to, you know, people don't like studios. They like the movies studios make, especially in the 80s, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I think what's very clear is that the the Terry Gilliam is a perfect, uh, unassaultable, uh, unassailable, sorry, um, you shouldn't assault him, uh, unassailable uh, folk hero is 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 a good he did a really good job of his own myth making and that's you know the thing about reality and life and i i've definitely learned more of this as i've got older peter as i'm sure you have too is that uh like good doesn't cancel out uh uh bad or bad doesn't cancel out good so it's you can have a very complicated i think and nuanced thing where like here's all the shitty things that terry gilliam did here's all the shitty things that the studio did here's the good things that the critics association did here's the good movie that gilliam made out of it but it's it it's funny because you and i both i think we're going into this like we got to talk about how much the student like you know a very like one sided it's not the right term but i think our perspective of it was our memory of like gilliam being a you know christ like folk hero crucified by the by the studios and it was funny that both you and i watched it separately and we're like oh wow okay i have a different impression of some of the things that that happened than i did uh 20 years ago it's also interesting peter you didn't watch the love conquers all version right no, I, no. So, so i did and What's funny about the Love Con? I'd never watched it before. I'd always meant to, but then I, uh, you know, a lot of times I was like, "Well, maybe I should just watch Brazil, the movie I love again." <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I, I figured if we watch movies these days, the idea of watching the inferior cut that's buried the shitty on version. the second disc of the of the Blu-ray is not particularly appealing. <laughs> no, I, and we talked. I mean, next week I did the same thing, so it was very funny that we're recording back-to-back movies with a good version and a shitty version, and I watched the shitty versions for both. Uh, but so, what's interesting about the Love Conquers All version is that one. The t- the title that was assigned to it, oh, this is the Love Conquers All version, is false. It ends the same way. And I had no idea that was the case. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've seen descriptions where it's not the case, where – they uh where 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 um they essentially ride off into the sunset together in love as opposed to the actual ending we get 
in the movie where he's still in the lobotomy machine and imagining a happy ending occurred. The part where uh, where Robert De Niro gets covered in newspapers and then disappears is still in it. They still go off to the country and the last shot of the movie is still him in the machine. It just is a static shot with clouds all around it. So it's like he's a, he's imagining the clouds that, that they fly off into the end. So that was very – that was actually like – a twist ending for me. I was expecting everything I'd read about it was that the fantasy was real. I don't know if people weren't watching it that closely or or what, but uh, very much not the case. It still it does end in the in the same way Brazil does. The big difference are like it, it for the most part it's just a cut down version and it's way too cut and so things are happening too quickly and you don't get to know the world and a lot of these things you need to marinate and sit don't really work. And then the other changes, I mean, and there's big chunks, obviously. Like, I think he, he has his job at the Ministry of Information and 35 minutes into the movie. You're like, what? You know, this happened so quickly. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't seem like he was concerned about it at all. Uh, but the, the other big change that's just worth calling out is that they add some stuff to make what is happening at the beginning extraordinarily explicit. So, like, um, it doesn't have the, um, uh, it, it starts with a cut of the explosion at the restaurant with it with his mom. That that's only like it shows like an ad, and then two people having dinner, and he looks stressed, you know. And then the explosion happens, and then it cuts to Brazil. But then when the Buttle Tuttle incident happens, you have a narrator reading out the com- computer, and then it really lets you know that hey, we have confused two people. It makes it extraordinarily explicit that you don't need to infer anything as it reads out that like Buttle, Tuttle, and he – this is all the things you need to know about Tuttle and and then uh, very explicitly hits the fly and stuff like that. And then there's a scene that they add that must have been shot to help explain it that Gilliam rightfully didn't use where um, someone after Buttle is taken, someone walks in and essentially is like, hey – what do you – why were they saying Tuttle? That's not Tuttle. That's Buttle. And so like that's the only like really I think major change from the – um from kind of uh the flow like the, that's kind of newer. It, it, it lets you know they have got the wrong guy. <laughs> Explicitly, this is the wrong guy and that's the mess that they did and everyone knows it's the wrong guy. But otherwise, it's just it, – it's essentially the same movie with about like 50 minutes missing. <laughs> Which I think it was interesting. That wasn't my impression. I, I, yeah, and it's also funny because if you think about it that way, the main movie could be called Love Conquers All because the theme of the movie is that love and daydreaming are, are, are two kind of two sides of this, are, are kind of uh, these two these two mechanisms uh, that allow us to escape the the doldrums of our existence, right? Like yeah. that that love and our dreams and, and and escapism allow us to to get out of our heads a little bit. Um, you could call either cut the love conquers all cut. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it I ends, it's, it's it ends the same. It is not. So I I do think like the, the, it would be more interesting if the other cut was just like we made this into a movie you could show to kids in a classroom. Yeah, I mean, ninety minutes, or, or it has an actual happy ending, which I think is interesting. Like you can tell, like I think I think part of the reason, and I've seen Terry Gilliam talk about this in the documentary, is that he made he made Brazil into a happy ending, and like that is, for what it's worth, that's just fundamentally not 
true. Uh, even though that is the that's where the love conquers all version because Gilliam said he made like a love conquers all version with a happy ending where they end up together. And it was yeah, that's, that's not what happened. So I think that's the other like, again, it's not like I'm def- the cut's bad and definitely doesn't hold a candle. It definitely shouldn't be a 90 minute movie. But the idea that Sh- uh, Scheinberg specifically uh, like literally set off to make a different like i'm going to take your movie and i'm going to make it a happy ending and all these other things it's that's not accurate and i I, making a tv cut he was essentially making a tv cut yeah all the swearings removed and there's only one the only like major shot of blood is um at the end when uh when uh michael palin's character gets gets shot through the head um so it it is very much a tv cut. cut yeah it'd be hard to cut otherwise it would just be like <laughs> what happened to the baby man? Um, yeah, I mean, like, you do uh, lose all the fantasy sequences except like one at the very beginning, so you do le- lose all the creepy. I mean, again, th- you this movie shouldn't have gone <laughs> down to a ninety-minute movie. You, it, it, it is a very shitty version. I just think that like, while you can say it's a much lesser version, and you'd be one hundred percent right, I don't think it's accurate what Gilliam was saying that he fundamentally changed the meaning of his movie, which is absolutely not accurate. And I don't. Yeah. I mean, I would have assumed Gilliam was right too, because until I've had I've had this a DVD and then the Blu-ray that has this cut on it for twenty years, and I never watched it until I had to record a fucking podcast about it. So, uh, you know, I my guess is that most people listening to this that have also had that DVD or Blu-ray have never watched it. Um, and again, I'm not recommending that you do, but if you think it ends with uh, with a happy ending, it just it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. It, I always assumed it had a happy ending until I was doing research for this episode. Um, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and then I want to. We're going to talk about Maggie Thatcher in the second half, but before we transfer over, I want to force some space in here to talk about the theme song. Yeah. Because it's important to the themes in the movie. Um, so the the theme song <clears throat> is a 1939. Um, it was written in 1939. <laughs> song called watercolor brazil i'm probably going to screw up the the pronunciation because i don't speak portuguese um a Correa do brasil um which is uh yeah the watercolor of brazil um it's one of the most famous uh brazilian songs it's the first brazilian song to ever really like chart in america which is kind of interesting because it ended up being in a disney movie um saludos amigos um the most popular Yes. So this guy, um, Ari Barroso, uh, wrote the song, performed the song, and uh, the version that you hear in the movie is obviously in English. So it's a uh, English language cover that was recorded for the movie uh, by a guy named Jeff Muldor. Um, and Michael Kamen is does the composition of it because he does the whole score for the movie. The score for the movie is phenomenal. I used to listen to it all the time. Um, sweeping and fun and funny and funky. It does whatever the movie needs it to do. Terrifying at times. It's, it's lovely. Um, but they did a co- an English language cover of the song, which is not the first time it was done. Um, that sounds kind of old timey. Um, and uh, the song was... It's very interesting because it's about how beautiful Brazil is. And it was supposed to be part of this artistic movement. Uh, Sorry, it it ended up uh, creating an artistic movement called Exaltation Samba. Um, And uh, this sort of song was a reaction to uh, a sort of a reaction to cultural forces at the time. And this guy, Barroso, um, was a a big, you know, made a big hit off of it. He also wrote a song, an anti-Nazi song called Salada Mista, um, which... 
I, I tried to look into it a little bit, but it's in Portuguese and the translations don't really nail, I think, um, what, what the goal of the song is. Uh, I think it probably sounds better in the original language. Um, but he, uh, what's interesting about that, just a little short snippet here, is that he created this uh, exaltation samba genre kind of accidentally or incidentally. And uh, his, it ended up, that genre ended up being co-opted by like nationalists because it, it ended up being a fairly like patriotic uh, song. I mean, it literally has Brazil in the, in the title and you listen to the English lyrics and it's just about a beautiful, wonderful, far off place that, you know, uh, where, where, where you can, you can have your own adventures and you can have love. And it's, it's just a, it's just a beautiful, beautiful song. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was co-opted by, and uh, associated with uh, fascism uh, and, and uh, the uh, uh, sort of nationalistic pushes happening in Brazil at the time, because Brazil had its own right wing uh, governorships um, and dictatorships uh, throughout the years. Uh, and <laughs> so the the family, his family, though, Barroso's family were like, no, he wrote anti-Nazi songs. He wrote lots of songs that were not within this movement that like were, when he wrote the song, he, his goal was just to talk about how much he loved his mother country. Um, and so it's just kind of interesting that this, this it ended up being for a period of time associated with uh, this uh, dictator uh, Vargas, who was a far right dictator who isn't depends on I am not a scholar of Brazilian history, but, you know, he was associated with fascism, but wasn't technically a fascist, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, dictator nonetheless, so still a piece of shit. Um, and what's interesting is that, like, because Brazil had a censorship board, the Department of Press and Propaganda, certain long, long, yeah, certain lines in the song um, almost got changed, and uh, Barroso had to fight <laughs> to to have them remain. Um, and then, uh, yeah, all of that comes to this point that, like, what I was kind of making fun of myself earlier that for a little bit I was like, oh, is this like a Starship Troopers thing? Um, the point is that. Uh, for a pasty British guy, I mean, this movie is written by Brits. It's directed by someone who's sort of an American expat who's tried to make himself into a Brit. Um, they even joined a British comedy troupe. Do you know, I think do you know about this? You know about this? At one point, I don't remember exactly. You know I th he, yeah, yeah, he, uh, yeah, he joined uh, that snake handler group. I forget what they're called. Uh, yep. <laughs> I got it, and I got it too late to build on the joke because I spent all the time trying to get the joke. <laughs> um, they handle pythons, everyone. Um, okay, so he. Uh, what's interesting about this is that someone from England or you know English background, they would see uh, places like Brazil and 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 uh, parts of South and Central America as these like far off paradises, these like rolling hills uh, of green and these places where you can, you know, go on on adventures and the sort of adventurism and like the sweeping sort of romanticism of, of the song uh, is about it's not about the place that the movie takes place. It's about the place where Sam wishes the movie takes place in his his land of dreams that's being invaded by uh, capitalist fascism and uh, totalitarian uh, capitalism um, that that's intruding on this space that that was a, a beautiful fantasy land for him and it's not literally Brazil but this this beautiful uh, romantic love song 
uh, is the place he wants to actually be. He doesn't want to be here in this land of, of ducks and tubes and wires. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very good song, Peter. Yeah, I have a. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, that was a great, great description. And I, I, I think I, even I learned something. <laughs> I didn't know even Aaron learned something. I, I the mainly researched. To be clear, I mainly researched the country. And again, that as we talked about at the beginning, that was a waste of time. What's their primary export? Uh, Brazilians. Oh. Yeah, that makes sense. They're, they, uh, yeah. I mean, they travel. Tourism? I don't know. It's a large country. Soccer large population. Imagine they get around. Uh, soccer. soccer, soccer, like soccer balls. No, just the concept. <laughs> the concept of soccer. I didn't learn import export. So right, we're watching old movie that's anti-capitalist. You think I'm learning about imports <laughs> and exports? Wait, you think I know the GDP? I learned about uh, the geography. Uh, the cities. They have all those things. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about one city very far off from Sao Paulo, Brazil? Somewhere city. <laughs> sure, Pete. It's, it's, I, I think Wacky <laughs> is not overdoing it by way of a descriptor, because this, it's not your daddy's office job. Uh, uh, no, it certainly is not. Um, it is your son's, I, though. Right? Yeah. It's the future. <laughs> um, but before that, you've been doing a great feature on Fuck Ronald Reagan Month called, hey, what did that guy Ronald Reagan do to deserve so many people pissing literally on his grave? Um, and we're at the end of the month. You want to take a little quick detour um, and to ensure that we just – if we do get iTunes reviews in the next month, they'll probably be bad. <laughs> I discovered your – I don't need to be lectured about Ronald Reagan. 
No politics in my RoboCop episode. Um, <laughs> no politics in my uh, on, on my movie They Live. Yeah. Um, but, well, I mean, this is, you know, this is about capitalism. Mm-hmm. Reagan, big supporter. Little, big, little, big, little old big, lady uh, named Maggie stand. Thatcher also. Big target. What What's going on with her? What up with that, Peter? What did she do? <laughs> so, uh, admittedly, Maggie is not my shithead, so I, I don't have the same level of research done on Maggie Thatcher that I, I have on Ronald Reagan, because uh, I grew up around Ronald Reagan. You lived it. So, you'd be like, hey, that thing that I heard over and over again is bullshit. And I was, uh, you know, yeah. I had history classes where people would be like, Ronald Reagan said this. And then with no value judgments, he, he was actually lying the entire time. Um, yeah, it's kind of like how when uh, when I'm watching Jeopardy and they do 90s one-hit wonders, it's like, how did I know all the answers? Not because I did any research. I lived the one-hit wonders. <laughs> Yeah, you're not you're not trolling the the, the, the top of the pops, baby. You, yeah. you were you were the top of the pops, yeah. and now you're a pop pop. I didn't know that. Are you Jimmy Ray? Who wants to know? Who wants to know? Wasn't going to be forever. <laughs> so I think obviously there's two there's two components of, of Maggie that we can we can resonate with uh, from last uh, last few episodes on on uh, old Ronnie Reagan, um, and that was her love. Of free market uh, capitalism and her erosion of the social safety net. Um, I don't know if you know this, Aaron, but uh, the UK, uh, when you picture the UK um, before, let's say, 1980, do you picture little street urchins and little, little children running around like Oliver Twist? Well, I, I don't need to picture it. That's I've seen filmographic evidence that that's what it's like all the time. <laughs> So uh, the truth is that uh, England, like like many developed countries, uh, had a problem with children not getting the being under malnourished, um, and so one of the very cheap, very easy programs was um, giving kids uh, milk through their public school systems, um, milk every day, basically through the public the school systems. Um, so these it was a very popular program. Um, because kids got their sustenance, whether, you know, they were getting fed well at home or not. And uh, Maggie, uh, as someone who, similar to, to, to Ronald Reagan, uh, would look at a government budget and find things to cut, even if they were unpopular. Uh, she was essentially chased out um, for trying to enact something that sort of resembles a flat tax. Um, a very regressive tax. It, it, uh, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but... Uh, she uh, gained a nickname of uh, Maggie, Maggie the Milk Snatcher Thatcher or Milk Snatcher Thatcher uh, because she cut this milk uh, subsidy program that allowed uh, children just to, to help supplement themselves out of malnutrition, particularly poor children, to just cut this very easy, fairly cheap program that had good results and was broadly popular and the reason i talk about this is not to say oh maggie stole some kids milk that means she sucks it's just indicative of the sort of shitty pettiness that she would bring into her her regime as a leader and the fact that like she was broadly popular broadly unpopular broadly popular again very similar to ronald reagan because both of them were ideologues who chased after um these these crazy think tank conservative beliefs um 
despite the just even when they were unpopular at the base um they were they were cultists for these this idea of the um the the western capitalist hard worker that you know you, that uh charity and the social safety net is actually making you weak and coddled yeah. and the only way that you can you can actually uh strive and succeed uh is by being um on your back haunches by yeah. being why, why do you think yeah what yeah it's the it's the like Hey, you know the best way to teach a kid how to swim is is to throw him into the deep end of the pool because he he knows drowning would be bad. He's gonna yeah. he's gonna fight really hard to not drown. Yeah, and she so she uh her she's famous for a lot of controversies similar to Ronald Reagan. Another one that I think would resonate uh, well with this movie. Um, she was extremely pro-privatization of uh, nationalized industries. So England uh, is, is uh, or at least was, far more nationalized than uh, the United States. And many people took great pride in that. Um, the idea is pretty simple, and it's something that I think is kind of challenging to Americans. At least it was challenging to me when I, when I read this. It's that if energy, so, you know, coal, uh, <laughs> if that comes from our natural resources as a country – then it should be a nationalized, protected industry um, that uh, is that benefits all of us. Um, that we're not that, that our money for our national uh, resources is not being funneled into capitalist pockets, right? Yeah, um, it's something that like I don't know. Have you ever thought about it that way, Aaron? It's sort of startling to me. I was like, wait, why do we just let capitalists come in and raid like? frack these mountains yeah it's really i mean yeah it's really fucking themselves it's really fucking dumb peter yeah of course i think about that like it's you know it's uh you know it there's enough like good like uh arguments of around like like when you you know if you want to teach a kid how dumb it is it's like so like well yeah i understand how people could own land or own this piece of water or, or own this lake or something like that and can do things to it and then if you're like okay well now what if someone says they own the air around you and you go, well, that's silly. <laughs> someone can't own the air. And then you're like, well, you know, the, how is that necessarily different? Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is insane that we just like, oh, that oil company wants to go dig into that mountain. Well, they're paying me an individual who somehow has been granted the ability to let that person go dig into the mountain. <laughs> and these people were these coal miners in particular the coal miners in particular um were going through a lot of economic downturns um particularly um with regards to uh, england was in a recession particularly with regards to cheaper energy to be found elsewhere being brought in um and so maggie's big idea was well let's put this up on let's go put this up on auction sell it off to privateers and uh, fuck the uh, nationalized uh, labor market, and it further decimated these these coal mining towns. Um, it, it it undermined their ability to unionize because they were already uh, they already had a very strong unions at the time, and these unions, in particularly in the seventies, um, would have these strikes where. Um, if you were in London, your power would just go out for the night because the union had was on strike and uh, there wasn't enough power to burn, which is like, I can't think about a union having that much tr- that power in America today. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Um, 
the the closest and one of the the, the corollaries I think you can have to this it, it's not even on the same scale but one of the corollaries you can have to this is is uh um, the, the flight traffic controllers um in Ronald Reagan's during Ronald Reagan's administration went on strike and he went and fired all them and put permanent re- permanent marks on their record um which wouldn't be removed until Bill Clinton's era uh, administration um so they couldn't be hired by the government again um these yeah, are what an asshole fuck strikes. that guy yeah. These are anti-union strikes, but the idea that they're like, oh, this it's disruptive for people to strike and therefore we need to destroy unions and I need to use my social and political capital to throw the public against these unions because it's inconveniencing the public um, is, is a change in thinking because the old change in thinking was the public would go, I want my fucking power to be on tonight. Pay the coal miners whatever the fuck they're asking for. Like – <laughs> stop stop jerking them around about having Sundays off or whatever the fuck they're asking for and do it. Um I don't know, isn't that I I I can't even I can't even fathom the idea of, of unions being that strong in this country. Well, it also though, I mean, the reason why those things broke is that unions at some point did, you know, have a lot more power in this country and stuff like that too. The the evil genius behind the marketing against them was that that essentially they have things that you don't and you should destroy that, which is, you know, the idea of unions and, and why they're popular and why, you know, especially like in the, you know, the 20s and the 30s and more and more, uh, uh, you know, businesses and the workers start to unionize is it kind of started as the like, hey, we banded together and we were able to get more stuff, you know, that we deserve. Because we're doing all the work, body, time, everything else. And then other people are like, oh, that – I want, you know, this and I want the the f- full five-day work week and I want to only work 40 hours and I want overtime if I do more. And so let's – we're going to band together and do the same thing. And the, the genius in the Reagan era from – again, genius in the, in the evil sense, but I mean it worked really well um, – is that instead of going, we want what the unions have, it was that how dare they have something that you don't have. And as a result, here's here's the damage they're doing by asking more. So like I remember being in Wisconsin in the in the late 2000s, like 2007, 2008, and the teachers went on strike and it was a Republican governor and – the the log line was was and this is like how the local news would cover it. It was you know like like today the quote unquote neutral news media even even in their neutralness like it's like well we got to cover everyone so um, and the Republicans are power and this is what they're saying so it just repeats what they're saying and nothing but it was this idea of like hey all these teachers want better health care. They already have better health care than most workers in Wisconsin. And so all the voters and the Republicans are like, how dare they ask for – like, at my shitty job, I don't get any health care. So all our tax monies are going to pay for them to have even better health care when I don't have any health care? And again, instead of the the idea of like, hey, they have a union and they have better health care now and they're executing their rights to say – you can't um, exploit us to try to get better health care and, and more stuff so that we should do the same thing so that we have that collective bargaining power. Instead, it's like, how dare they take my tax money to give them health care when I don't even have health care? We should take it from them or not let them. And that shift that both Thatcher and Reagan and 
a lot of these like capitalist right wingers were able to do in the eighties was extraordinarily effective. Like to this day, this idea of like, oh, you know, the idea they they make you form a union and then they take your money. And it's like, what do you think the corporation that's hiring is doing? Like they are paying you so that they can make a profit off you. It is it's 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 like generally frustrating how well they've been able to turn a lot of people in this country, even not just, you know, hardcore right wingers into this idea of it's less about what I can get and more about other people better not be getting anything good if it impacts me in any way, even if that's lied about about how it's impacting me or why it's impacting me. Yeah, yeah, it's um, and it, it's pretty fucked up to flip the narrative like that on people that the yep. only reason they're striking at, at great personal uh, bodily and financial yeah. risk for their families Um the only reason they're striking is to to protect themselves. And uh, so you talk about like we talk about like, oh, Reagan fired um, these air traffic controllers and put a mark on their record so they couldn't be hired by the federal government. And um, what Maggie did is particularly uh, vile, which is <clears throat> she slowly stored up six months worth of coal Um and so that uh, the country could outlive the strike. So the idea here is not protecting England. The idea here is that strikes work when they hit hard and they hit immediately and they make an impact. Yeah. And the political action in general, boycotts and marches and strikes when they make a clear, immediate impact and everybody has to stop what they're doing and actually think about what you're doing. When you're interrupting highway traffic, when you're interrupting yeah. people's day-to-day -day life um, and you're making people actually like listen to your to your, to your grievances, um, you are making a – you are, you are making a, an impact. When it's a, a protracted six-month thing, yeah. uh, it has two effects. One uh, – people's empathy is just not that elastic unfortunately yeah. uh and two um people can't go on strike for six months because they have to fucking eat yep uh eventually no matter how well your union is taking care of you or what you're doing on the side or what m money you've stored up or yada yada a lot of things that were probably not um privileges that this particular union had the coal miners union um those those all run out pretty pretty fucking quickly. Um, the idea is to make a big splash of an impact, get the change done, uh, and then go back to work. Right? That's that's their that's what they're asking for. Better better uh, uh, better benefits so that when they go back to work, they're actually making uh, their their family their home life um, successful. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Maggie uh, Maggie uh, found a way to ensure that uh, this this coal strike was completely ignored by the public eventually. Yeah. Um, it did make her extremely unpopular with working class people with with long memories. Um, but for a lot of people that are well to do, a lot of people that are capitalists, a lot of people that are landowners, that sort of class of people, yeah. um, they actually remember this fondly as part of her <clears throat> Iron Lady, quote unquote. Yep. Um, I can. I won't be told. I mean, that was the Reagan stuff too, and it's uh, you know this. It, it does translate well to a dystopian fascism where like you know worker and human life are not valued you know we talked i think in robocop peter about how how one of the the the, the hyper reality it presents this happens in repo man 2 and explicitly in this movie is this idea of like um you know how 
how nonplussed people are by death and brutal murder. And, you know, that's it's because human life as a whole has is treated as a as a commodity. And this this movie really, really uh, hammers home there. So what happens in Brazil? Uh, so okay, so really quickly, yeah. a last piece of of Maggie Thatcher's legacy that I want to touch on is her love for state violence. Oh yeah. Um, so there's other things to talk about how she ignored AIDS. Um, I'll actually talk about that in my re- in my my closeout to the month. Um, how she drummed up fear against gay people in school debates. She essentially did the groomers thing. Um, and uh, <clears throat> and many of her policies were unpopular. So she would use. She would yeah. use these like social issues as a wedge. It's the same thing we see see today. It's the Republican Party's entire strategy for at least forty years, right? Oh, way um, longer than that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I guess they're. Um, I mean, George Bush and the George, the Iraq War was unpopular, and so they put gay marriage and all that stuff on the on the ballot in like all those states that they were worried about turnout in two thousand four. So, I mean, no, it's, yeah. So, I guess before nineteen eighty eight would have been about segregation issues, right? I mean, yeah, but that's the, yeah, all the all the southern the southern. I mean, the southern state strategy in Nixonian and then Reagan's like uh, cozying up to the religious right has been like all wedge issues to get voters to vote against their own. Um, their own uh, economic stability and and rights and everything else, with the idea of punishing people who are doing things that um, that you personally don't agree with. Yeah. So we talked a little bit in the Patriot Games episode about uh, um, how some some part of my like Irish nationalism or I- Irish uh, pride has been kicking in in the past year um, as I do more research into uh, Irish and, and particularly. Um, Irish and, and, and history with regards to its uh, time during the UK. Um, and it's it's been very exciting to see uh, Irish unification get closer and closer um, slowly. But I think I think maybe in my lifetime uh, we will have a unified uh, we'll have a unified Ireland it will be something to be to be very proud of. Uh, Maggie didn't want that. Um, Maggie escalated the violence and the troubles considerably. She was similar to Reagan. She was a big believer in the police state. She was a big believer that there were bad apples that you could weed out through violence. And that the idea, um, is that if you occupied a community, so (laughs) Irish Catholic communities, um, with enough, uh, heavy force that you could, um, that you could eventually break them, that you could eventually break them over their, their knee. The, the cruelty is the point in this case. Um, similar to Reagan and the war on drugs, um, the war on poverty, where he would have uh, increased police. Uh, he encouraged increased police presence in, in black communities and Hispanic communities. Um, Maggie, uh, Maggie was a racist also, but she uh, – for this particular point, I want to just touch on um, the, the troubles um, and how she did not – uh, negotiate with terrorists, and she took that as uh, some sort of sign of strength um, because she labeled anybody that was for um, that had a political opposition to her as a terrorist. There's a lot more reading that we can't get into all of it today, but it does inform Brazil. Um, I also highly recommend you read up about Bobby Sands um, and his hunger strike and the way that Maggie Thatcher treated that. And before we end this month, I really have to tell, I really have to quote um, the the uh, IRA statement when they tried to blow up Maggie Thatcher. Um, so after years of protracted violence um, and uh, escalating violence from Maggie Thatcher's government uh, and trying to subjugate the Irish people, um, 
who uh, Maggie also had an ide- ideological hatred of uh, the Irish. Uh, sorry, uh, the Irish and the Irish Catholics, um, because it was not her particular religion, and she carried that um, and made it more of a, a part of her her, her uh, lifeblood. She thought that Irish Catholics were uh, lazy. Um, whereas, uh, her people, these church of England style Protestants were, were the true lifeblood of, of nations. Um, but so the IRA tried to blow Maggie Thatcher. They failed. Um, sh- shucks. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher oh, no. will now realize, and, this is statement, <laughs> and I, it's too bad. It doesn't really fit in this, but it's too badass. but it, it'll lead right into our, our discussion of Brazil. Mrs. Thatcher will now realize that Britain cannot occupy our country and torture our prisoners and shoot our people in their own streets and get away with it. Today, we are unlucky. But remember, we only have to be lucky once. You will have to be lucky always. Give Ireland peace and there will be no war. And I'm sure you've heard a variation yeah. on that quote before, Aaron. The We only have to be lucky yeah. once. Oh, great, great, great quote. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I mean you're you're right. That is the 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 police state and just labeling anyone that disagrees with you terrorists. Uh, again, not not only relevant in you know in this movie, which as we mentioned is this idea of 1984, 19, 1984's 1984. Something you know the 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 politics of the eighties are are incredibly relevant today. And God, I don't know how many people in the 2000s were labeled as terrorists or even now, like how many people marching for that for Black Lives Matter or something like that are like, well, they're actually terrorists because one window was cracked somewhere. Uh, but of course, you know, who's never the terrorist, uh, the people who actually inflict terror. Like, I don't know, police? Is someone I'd mention? Uh, anyway, uh, so what happens in Brazil? So it, the movie starts with um, pipe. If you're, if you're, even if you uh, have positive feelings around Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, which as we've said all month, you shouldn't, I do think if you're an HVAC enthusiast, regardless of your feelings, you're going to be very positive on this movie. This movie has more HVAC than any movie I've ever seen, Peter. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Even more than HVAC the movie, which is mostly a love story about two HVAC uh, repairman. <laughs> and uh, if you think that uh, this movie is about a massive machine, the cogs of capitalism, the movie is going to let you know immediately that ducks are going to be the most prevalent thing you're going to see. In the- you're going to see more ducks than people in this movie. Yeah, there's there's no intentionality. So they have ducks. And how do you have your ducks? And your ducks are everywhere. Because, again, this was not designed for human comfort, this world. This was designed for profit. Um, I love that they can't hide them in the rich people version. They just make them sleeker and a little, yeah. like a little slimmer. Like, look, we can't, we can't, you know, much, first of all, if you do change your HVAC system, that's going to be very costly. So, uh, and of course, why would they spend money on something like a human comfort or, or aesthetics? Uh, but anyways, uh, they, it starts out with a commercial on the HVACs and the, uh, the pipes and everything else that explodes. Kind of like, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's a, it's a violent world because they're terrorists. One of the great things, we don't really see much of the, the terrorists. There's not ever a scene where they go back and they, you know, meet the terrorist leader or stuff like that because, uh, the whole movie is shown from the perspective for the most part of people that are within the system and very much ignoring the clearly like um beaten down downtrodden world that this fascist government 
has made the new normal. It's, I mean, it is a great thing. They basically show everything as, for the most part, normal. And so, even though we know watching what we're seeing on screen, it's it's not normal from our everyday life. Like, we never have the, here's the, the leader of the government who's plotting how he's going to take over people. And same point, we never see the leader of the terrorists or what they want or what their specific actions are. It is really just like, this is the life of everyday people in a machine and there's explosions every day because, you know, there there's there's people out there fighting the government, uh, even if we don't really see them too much, minus, of course, uh, Robert De Niro's character. But again, his version of fighting the government for the most part is just doing unlicensed HVAC repair and trying to make – Cuts through the red tape. Cuts through the red tape and makes, makes their systems better. So – Starts out there's a processor who is essentially trying to uh, Harry Tuttle, um, uh, Robert De Niro's character. They're planning to arrest him, um, and instead uh, there's a fly that gets killed. And uh, the, the it's a literal bug in the little, system. Literal bug in the system. Yeah, the B changes to a T, or sorry, the T changes to a B. Instead, they arrest Harry Tuttle, who's just a guy. With his, you know, a middle-aged guy with his wife and his kids and they arrest him and they put him in shackles and, you know, the police have this elaborate system to come take him. Uh, no one knows why. They don't have to read him their rights. It's a fascist police state. They just take him and he, dis- and he disappears. So then we get introduced to our protagonist, played by the wonderful um, Jonathan Price. Uh, I know this is bad, but I didn't write down his... Uh-huh. Sam Lauer? Uh, Sam, yeah. Uh, I'm pulling back up my character sheet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, Jonathan Price plays Sam uh, Lowry. He's a, he's essentially like a middle management as a processing company. And, again, this this is really taking that kind of uh, bureaucracy to new heights. We I'm not going to get into it through the recap. We can call it out here. The, the movie really underscores very subtly that part of the way like a fascist government works is you have to get – Everyone focused on bullshit that's not what they're doing. So I really love – like to that point, there's later on when you see outside of the city, right? They put up these billboards. They essentially make it – you're unable to see anything but these bright, colorful billboards advertising products. You can't see anything past the street like uh, you know the side of the road, the, the lands that you're traveling through just because these giant billboards are basically put you in like almost a – like a track – um, and whenever they pan out, they just show devastation and destruction. Like there's no trees. There's no, it's just, it's brown. Some areas are smoky. It is like they've created this bubble city and how you keep people busy in these, in these systems is by giving them tasks. You're basically giving them busy work. And so there's a system of just form after form and process after process. And everything is kind of cobbled together. And a lot of people don't know how stuff works. And a lot of people don't even really know what their job is. They sneak in movies all day and don't really understand what to do. And that's that's where Sam works. His boss is uh, Ian Holm. Ian Holm 
is an, is a classic ineffectual middle manager. He doesn't know how anything works. He does not doesn't have any ideas. He relies on Sam to get everything. <laughs> he's terrified. If anything goes out of order, he's terrified. He has no critical thinking skills. Whatsoever. No, and but he, but that's all he wants, right? He, like he he's not trying to do anything but but work at the job that he was told to. Sam, uh, you know, his mom's been trying to get him to get up to take a promotion to the Ministry of Information. He's not interested in that. He feels no satisfaction in this this like yeah. paper processing overformed world that he has <laughs> and he has fantasies he has this fantasy of a woman that he's never met um and of him soaring through the air and rescuing uh rescuing her from uh these like uh baby monsters on the street below um uh, and he has an armor and a sword and wings and like soars above the city in the blue clouds and like the city is like these you know literally like five hundred story metal cage skyscrapers that he rescues and he has this recurring dream all the time until he one day when he's going to work he notices um, this this uh, woman named Jill played by Kim uh, Grace who you I, I recognized as the mom from Homeward Bound the Incredible Journey. Um, that's what you call the movie. It's not the subtitle of the movie. It's just what you call it. Oh, yeah. At the end of it, I'm always like, what an incredible journey. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, uh, But yeah, so she, she's there to report the fact that she was Buttle's neighbor. And hey, this secret police took, you know, took Buttle. And I think this was supposed to be Tuttle. And he sees her on the monitor and kind of becomes obsessed because he's like, oh, my God, this person from my dreams exists in real life. But, you know, there's there's too much. She's she's under watch because she's basically going in and saying you got forms wrong. One of the the big conflict between Ian Holm and Jonathan Price at the beginning is that, like, they're they're in charge of processing a paycheck for this person as a refund. But this the person that they had the paycheck for was the wrong person because it was supposed to be Tuttle and now it's Buttle. So now they have this check that technically its existence proves a mistake in the system. And even though everything is shoddy and falling apart at the seams, you know, the great lie that everyone needs to kind of believe is that there are no bugs in the system. There are no mistakes. Everything is working perfectly. So Ian Holmes freaking out that this check represents that the, you know, the perfect fascist government is in fact not perfect. When, again, the, yeah. the, the contrast and the irony in why it's funny is that you just need to watch this world for 30 seconds to see that this is not a perfect system. This is like – this is not an intelligently designed system. This is cobbled together through no – it's kind of like our own bodies, right? Like why the fuck does an appendix work? Why does my back hurt if I sleep this way? Yeah. Like it is – it's a complete mess, and, and uh, the fact that everyone has to walk around going, how could a mistake ever happen is part of – the 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 fascism that they've they've just trained people to to believe and that's part of the pythonian absurdity yeah. of the movie is people are always worried about the wrong thing or they have convinced themselves that something is normal and cool um he is more worried about how he can paperwork his way through the bureaucracy um then he is worried about the fact that the wrong person was taken yeah tortured and killed he seems momentarily startled with the fact that he's killed and then you realize he might not actually be start he might not actually be startled that he's killed he just means that him being killed and taken through this torture system may mean that he has there's more paperwork to deal with that this person wasn't simply uh caught and released by the government 
means that, uh, oh my God, he went through so many systems. He went through information retrieval and he went through this, he went through this, like uh, that he's more worried about how it's going to affect him. And this all goes back to- Well, also he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't want to be the person that ends up calling attention to the mistake. And right now, the biggest proof that a mistake exists is the check sitting in their department. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very Pythonian. Like, I, I, I guess like the perfect Monty Python thing would be like, um, someone is uh, has a gaping head wound and they're worried about bleeding on somebody next to them. Yeah, like they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, and it's 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 or it's that they misspelled the, the they filled out the form to get into the hospital incorrectly, and it's like, yeah, no, 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 it yeah. said that's for office use only. Oh, terribly sorry. <laughs> It's yeah. very Pythonian absurd for people to worry about this shit that does does not matter. It's fucking paperwork. And it, it, it's very liberating to have Sam, whose superpower is that he can cut through red tape and get to where we need to go. But he doesn't cut through red tape in the same way Sam – or sorry, Harry Tuttle does because Harry Tuttle just straight up breaks the rules um, to get people's AC working and such. Sam knows how to turn these pieces of bureaucratic bullshit into the effect he wants. Um, And Sam's other superpower is because no one takes responsibility except for rogues. Every single person, every single person in the movie is always blaming what happened on somebody else. Even when even the cops are like, oh, shucks. Um, you know, if, if, uh, the information retrieval had given us better information, yeah. uh, it, the, I'll get to the, <laughs> I'll, I'll get to the most crucial one of those in a moment. But, um, my favorite one that opens the movie is the, um, the, the, the arrest of Harry Buttle. Um, after the, they chew through the floor oh, with this yeah. crazy shoes on yeah. gun. These two maintenance guys come in, central works guys come in, and they're essentially because these apartments are just sort of like these cheap dollhouses that they just patch yeah. over with these like these like standardized plugs. Um, they come in with these big plugs to fill in the hole in one unit to to fix it. Like these people were called at the same time the SWAT guys were called. Um, they drop the plug through the floor. Well, yeah, because she's complaining the that they made a mistake, and he's like, huh, "Central intelligence doesn't make mistakes." Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they're all they're all so high on their own supply. Um, but they go the first thing that one of them goes, "They've gone back to metric without telling us." He didn't measure the floor. He didn't measure the plug he was putting in. His entire job was to fill the floor, and he won't take the the common courtesy of a handyman. Yeah, like. The, the, this is entirely a movie about people refusing to take take responsibility for basic actions, and as we'll get to later in this, uh, the, the 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 main character, the main I would say the one of the main faces of the villainy in this movie, Jack, Sam's friend, yep, played by Michael Palin, played by Michael Palin, wonderfully played. So by I mean, Palin. he's so good at being somewhat silly. And then being also terrifying. Yeah, he his quote about having the right man, because he was handed somebody to torture and kill. It means that he didn't do anything wrong because he uh, operated in good faith. Oh, yeah, so by thinking he had the right yeah, man. Yeah, so he, had, he ends up. We'll, we'll skip it ahead a little, but his friend is the. We find that later is the person who did the torturing, and they didn't mean to kill him. But his thing is like, hey. Uh, you know, Buttle didn't have a heart con- – like, according to my records, 
Buttle didn't have a heart condition because this other people actually Tuttle Tuttle didn't have a heart condition, but Buttle did. So I did exactly what I should have done to someone that didn't have a heart condition like Tuttle, who was the man I was supposed to be torturing. But but like it's this it's this web of the torture that I did was fine for the person that I was supposed to have. So me killing him is the result of all these other paperwork and the getting the files wrong and everything else. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's systems that exist not just to have systems, but also to provide seven layers of, of removal from anything that happens. And, and to your point, it doesn't just allow um, them to be no forward motion or thought. It also completely, you know, uh, it's dehumanizing. It removes them from the human experience. They, they are part of a cog in a machine. And if, you know, if if the 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 machine hasn't delivered the right part they don't need to think about it as a as a human being as a logical creature as someone who has empathy or humanity for other people it is a process that failed getting to them and thus they yeah. they cannot be responsible for for executing it correctly Absolutely. It's a removing of the personal and the intimate in exchange for the system. It's not – the system is not something that you have to do now. It's like, ah, crap, I have to remember to, you know, scrub my toilets at the end of the day or whatever, right? Like the system is not an additional thing to you. This is a thing that you are exchanging a part of yourself for. And the – like there's literally a stenographer who's taking – her job is – her smiling like – assistant job and stenographer job is to smile and go oh i'm uh, taking transcripts of the torture sessions and it's someone going ooh, oh yeah uh, ooh, yeah. uh ow 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 like horrifying shit but she's putting on her smile because that's that's her job she has traded a part piece of her humanity just as jack has just as everybody in the system well, yeah, to which, extent. yeah i mean which is again so, we've we've very everyday real life parallels this all the time how many how many uh idiots and terrible people from the trump administration come out as they things get find out and they're like well you don't understand my job was to uh you know give the president his uh his marker to change maps so you, you gotta understand he's the president if he tells me you gotta go change this map i'm the map changer <laughs> you know who's, who's responsible That's the entire it's, like, it's the entire january 6th committee so thus far it's, yeah it's, it's ever it's but it's but it's, it's oh, been man, never guy. it's never well you don't understand my job was this and so <laughs> and like th that is they 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 use the system as cover and then uh, you know, from a public perception, it actually works really well. This idea, well, because you know why? It's it's because everyone knows the the how shitty under capitalism having a boss who tells you to do stuff, and you go, well, I think that's a bad idea, and you go, well, if you don't do that, you're going to be suffer at work. So we let we let people get away with literal terrible crimes because. We understand how terrible it is to have a shitty boss that's telling you to do something, and eventually you either have to do it or and figure out a way to separate yourself from the damage you're causing. And if if it's something that causes damage, maybe it's just something you just don't agree with, unrelated to that, or you have to find a new job. And that's like that's like you know Trump administration dot tax. Like they all did it for a long time, and then some of them went, "Ugh, man, I feel really bad occasionally." Or I'm going to get in a lot of trouble because he's not going to protect me and uh, we're going to go. But like, yeah, that that 
again, the the empathy for how easy it is to have a shitty boss in our capitalist world that like literally rewards power hungry and sociopathic lunatics is like the reason we let people get away with crimes. Like, I get it, bud. Yeah, you had to bomb those civilians because your boss was riding you. Um, yeah. And this goes really quickly yeah. while we're here, because I think we can probably talk about this yeah. a little bit, because it's not super crucial to the plot, but it does connect back to the Maggie Thatcher thing and the Ronald Reagan thing. Oh, I bet um, you know, it's one that, of my favorite things. I bet I know what you're going to say. The, so, okay, so th- I, I want to start here, but this is not where I'm going. Um, the fact that Sam Lowry is at a fancy restaurant oh. and he's ordering by numbers. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they are making – he's at a fancy restaurant and with his mom. That is the next scene. Ma- so that's – because she's saying she's having her face stretch for the new um, yes. the new procedure and talking about how, you know, you could be in ministry re- – or in information retrieval and you should be there. Why wouldn't you be in information retrieval? And he, he is totally disconnected from the dinner. He doesn't care about why his mom's stretching her face like that. It really is that, like, the Simpsons thing where he, like, keeps all of his skin behind his back. Um, oh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the same same type of procedure. It, it was crazy recognizing, like, who uh, who the guy doing it, Jim Broadbent? Oh, yeah, Jim Broadbent, <laughs> yeah. who... I, I guess he's been around like forever. Theater guy. Yeah, I thought he was a 90s but, and then 2000s guy. Yeah, but he was he's he plays a creepy villain in a lot of eighties and nineties movies. Um, he's been around for for a long time, and he has that great sort of like <sighs> evil Colin Firth face. Yeah. Like he looks like the face of British bureaucracy yeah. in, in in a way. Like he's just got this sort of like oh dear sort of face. Yeah. And uh, the restaurant owner, uh, the restaurant, uh, the maitre d, essentially freaks out. Like when Sam was saying, "Like I'll have a steak or whatever," and is just pointing at the menu. And when he won't say number three or whatever, um, this jumps back to the face stretching thing because this. Oh, and then the food comes out, and it's it's a fucking pulpy food paste bullshit. Yeah. Uh, it's disgusting looking, uh, and they all go like messy, <laughs> um, <laughs> and this. They're in a high-tech shit world. Yeah. Like, everything is high-tech and fancy and fast, and everything is is personality-free and has no intimacy, and it sucks ass. Like, so the um, – the the um his apartment when he wakes up is is like a reverse version of like – I don't know, like it, – It's a reverse version of like um, Pee-wee's, uh, Pee-wee's uh, Big Adventure house. Right, like yeah, where everything works kind of how it's supposed to. Well, work. yeah, it's a it's giant, a like goofy. elaborate machine that works really well. And here, these are giant weirdo elaborate machines, and nothing works. Which you know is a common '80s sort of goof. The dad in Gremlins is a bad inventor. I think Doc Brown is sort of has a mixed, mixed inventor history, doesn't he? Have oh, like I wouldn't say like, mixed. I'd say he'd have one success. Like it's a big yeah. success. But if you're judging him by way of percentile, that guy sucks. Well, yeah, but he did invent a time machine, which I think kind of counterfacts the counterweighs the fact that he yeah, but that but but did he invent a time machine because he sets everything right and blows it up? Yeah. So effectively, he didn't do anything. He did take someone back in time. I know, but I mean, effectively, the nothing accuracy changes. of it is bad. Like, not this. What happened would have been been. I mean, I get it. He doesn't break his hand. He, you know, he doesn't. I mean, I've seen Back to the Future three. I get it. Don't write letters. I know there's some mild yeah. changes to one guy's life. Yeah, but um, he does technically take someone back in time. Um, so, uh, th- I mean, but he doesn't do shit. The- he dies. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But the phones are switchboards instead of actual phones. Yeah. Oh, I, so works. that – just in case we don't get back there. I, what – there's the amount of like little fascist details in this movie is fantastic. And the fact that no one can actually dial anyone they want to is phenomenal. Like – Oh yeah, it's incredible. That was that's a that's a that, I think that's a feature, not a. Oh. I think that's a, a feature. Oh, a hundred percent. Like they have specific things that their phones connect to, and instead of dialing a number, they just plug it into like a, a headphone jack or whatever. Except that it only you know they only have each person has nine <laughs> of who they can call. So like yeah, you can't meet new people and get a hold of them because you don't have their headphone jack, which really like limits all of your, your ability to socially interact and in, in like a, in not in person, which again is when you, and when you're in person, there's secret police everywhere. So, and I certainly wouldn't waste one on my boss. Yeah. Um, his alarm doesn't work because there's power outages. Like his, his alarm clock doesn't work and he's in this fancy new future. And the point of all the – and the facelifts are is well, straight out Monty Python. The, the last thing, the part that I the, – the detail that's omnipresent but is easy to like forget with all the other great things, <clears throat> which is another great hallmark of the fashion society. Every day is Christmas. Yeah. So they always have to walk around with movie. presents because it'd be rude not to give Christmas. Again, something you always have to be thinking about. I need to have presents or what present am I going to get this person? And they have to do that every day because every day is Christmas. Christmas is a big to do because of how much work and preparation and decorations and, and, money. and money and everything else. And so they've made it every day is Christmas, but not just on background. Like people constantly like, well, I have a present because, you know. Because in case I see you for Christmas, people go away from people's office and don't forget to take your Christmas present. The the his mom's friend dresses as Santa and they do a thing. Everything there's Christmas decorations everywhere, like to hide all the bullshit. It also helps, like you know, the metal aesthetic is good for Christmas. The tinsel thing, so they wrap it in more tinsel and lights and make it festive and stuff like that. It's such a great. It's omnipresent, but like if you would have. It just seeps so well into the foundation of this movie that, like, it's just Christmas all the time and no one ever mentions it. It's it's just a perfect detail for, like, how to, again, not just keep keep, keep a, a, a society, you know, with their boots stepping on their head, focused on other things constantly. Absolutely. The, the, the busy work of the bureaucracy during your day job and then when your day job is done, the cheap consumption of bullshit. Uh, I love – I absolutely love, Aaron, this thing that I think Sam gets gifted at twice. It's just this dumb fucking tchotchke that's made out of metal and uh, Sam says, what is it? And she goes, something for an executive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we don't know what it does. We don't even know if it's one of those like metronome things or the balls. Uh, oh, are you talking about other. the thing that just says like yes or no? It's like a shitty magic eight ball. It's yeah. That's what it's it does. like a yeah. weird like it's like yeah. So you, it, can a- you can ask like, it questions. I mean, remember when he gets his office at? I'm jumping ahead one sec. I'll, I'll go back and and do that. But when he gets his uh, office at administ- ministry retrieval, I mean, there's nothing in his desk. There's no computer. It's like, like here, yeah. Who cares about what job you actually do? Here's your office now. Like that's that's the part of the process that I'm in. I'm in charge of. So, anyways, he does have this dinner with his mom. There's an explosion. A bunch of people are like gruesomely bloody and dying, and they just you know continue with their dinner because, hey, part of life that again. We talk all the time about the normalization of terrible things right now in this country. And I'm sure uh, right now the idea that people would just, you know, 
explode part of the restaurant that you're eating at. That is still not a normalized thing. But I think from where I was 10 years ago, I can imagine that there's a version of our world in 20 years that that could become normalized because of all the other things that we've just gotten so used to being to being normal. He goes home to his house. His house isn't working. The, the heat isn't working. He calls it in and they're like, we don't have any appointments. It's going to be weeks. You have to fill out a form. And his call was intercepted by a rogue HVAC repair person named Harry Tuttle, played by Robert De Niro, who, yeah, he his his way of um, fighting the fascist society is to cut through all the red tape and actually go in and fix fix the problems um, that um, that no one actually wants to fix. So he goes, he has ways to fix the HVAC better than anyone else, and immediately starts working again. And right after that, there's a knock on the door because I'm assuming there's some some good monitoring going on. Um, it is a, a you know police uh, police system where Bob Hoskins, uh, Super Mario Mario himself, uh, is there and is like, "Hey, you called for repair people." He's like, "Yeah, it fixed itself," which raises concerns. He is able to beat them at their own game. By saying you can't come in here because I need to see the form. He knows what form that they need and they don't have that. 27B strokes. Yep. And they don't have that form. So they leave. They will return. <laughs> um, we'll be back. We'll be back. Um, you know you know what Mario says. I'll be back, you son of a bitch. <laughs> trying to figure out how he tracks. Uh, how, how do I track down Jill? And he's talking with Ian Holm. He's like, I guess. The only way to do it, if I become part of Ministry Retrieval, I would have access and the security clearance to look at the computer and and find her. He goes to Buttle's house, talks to Buttle's wife. He keeps getting close to figuring out how to get in contact with her, but ultimately takes the job at Ministry Re- Retrieval. I love that like the boss of Ministry Retrieval is like a um, – perpetual motion west wing walk and talk machine like he doesn't every time we see him it's almost like a school of fish right like which is the exact thing of people moving on instinct without like human thought he just walks around the office people show him paper that he doesn't look at he says yes or no and then he just goes in circles you like can catch up with the school and join it and get off at your exit um and they give him to his office and his office is very narrow and then you realize again a great detail. What they've done is they've taken one desk and one office and put a wall in the middle, but the desk is still shared. You get half a desk connected to a wall and you can move it. So he's kind of fighting for desk space since there's nothing else in this office with this other guy. He goes into that guy's office. This guy's the very funny part. He's also the worst. And he, he, to use his computer to find Jill. And uh, he's like, uh, yeah, no, I'm a whiz at computers. I'll find him. It's about a girl. Love of your life. Like all those kind of like immediately realizing what he's doing. And then Jonathan Price being very like um, taken aback by the idea of like, oh, yeah. No, of course I'm not chasing the girl of my dreams. <laughs> uh, literally. Uh, very funny. I, I love this scene, Peter, where like he's like, I'm a whiz on the computer. I'm a whiz. On the computer, and he like he touches a button. He's like, "Well, can't do it. Broken." He's like, "We haven't turned it on yet." Just uh, great. It's ineptitude. What does that guy do all day? Nothing. Doesn't matter. He's in the office. He's in the the information retrieval. 
He's in a box, but he wants to jockey for a slightly larger box because the walls yeah. move. So he eventually fi- gets the information to go find her, uh, but, he, but he needs one more piece. He gets a lot of the details. He needs her address, and the only person he knows who can get that is the person who processed uh, – because she lives at the same address, the same uh, uh, building as Buttle. So he needs to talk to the person who, who – uh, brought in Buttle, which turns out to be his friend, Jack. Uh, and this entire scene, like, let, we can park here for a sec. This entire scene is may, maybe my favorite scene in the movie. We already talked about the fact that, like, he has to wait in the secretary's office who's tr- transcribing the screams of someone being tortured for information. That uh, uh, Jack has his daughter who's at work with him because, you know, he took his daughter to work that day and she's drawing painters while there's literally blood. He's soaked in blood. There's blood all over the floors. Again, just from a young age, the idea that dad's job is to torture people for information, whether they have it or not. Um, and uh, and yeah, he that's where they have the conversation around um, around how – well, it's not his fault because he did exactly what he was supposed to based on the file he was given. The only reason it caused a problem is because these other people got in the wrong file. I also love when he asks – a very Monty Python thing but very – I mean – Michael Palin's the perfect person to deliver a very Monty Python line where he's like, well, you can tell me where she lives. Your your information retrieval. And he goes, ah, yes, but giving you information would be information dispersal. (laughs) (laughs) There's always there's always someone else. There's just another layer. And, you know, it's not a joke. You realizing for the first time, here's another department. There's information retrieval separately. The people that give you the information is the information dispersal. Like, again, the amount of like the, the, you know, the hand can't see what the or the eyes can't see what the hand is doing thing that they've structured here is just amazing. There's not even one information department. There's one that's collecting it and one that's dispersing it. I, 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 this is, I do not blame the individuals involved here, but tell me if you can resonate with this. Uh, My favorite person at any job, at any job, is the person that when I go, I'm like, hey, like, let's say I'm going to IT department. I'm like, I don't understand how this works. Can you help me out? Uh, They won't go, hey, you should actually um, meet with this person, but go through their secretary and then they'll assign you somebody who can put together a PowerPoint deck. Like, all of that shit that I'm like, oh, I just created 17 people's work instead of just like you sitting down and explaining something to me that I don't actually need like a deep understanding of. Like, I'm a project manager. Um, like I don't actually need a deep, deep understanding of it. I need enough to, I need enough to know where, where, where it's going to break. Right. Um, and my favorite people in the entire company, they could be rude or short or condescending or smug with me. If they're just like, yeah, I'd love to explain that to you. And they're right. Yeah. They're my favorite person in the entire company. hundred percent. Like, like I had a conversation with a very, not happy to have a conversation with me person in uh, IT the other week because I wanted them to explain how this like process worked with servers that was super complicated. And she was clearly like annoyed that I interrupted like whatever she was doing. That was probably very important. And she became my favorite person in the company almost because she was mad to answer me, but everything she said was right. And I could like verify it. I'm like, I was like, oh, you connected all these dots for me. Thank you so much. <laughs> like the, the 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 red tape and the tick and the tickets and the the bureaucracy and all this shit, this like removal of 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 authority 
obviously like processes are there to make people's lives less stressful but in this particular instance it's 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 elevating the bureaucracy above simple red tape into a place where um people are no longer people they're cogs in a machine and if you try and put an input into the person they cannot be a well-rounded person if you try and put an input into the person that's not correct they say actually i can reroute you to this person that i think will get you to the correct place for that input yeah yeah no i Uh, i agree i mean 100 percent. i mean i think an experience that most of us that have worked in companies have like i mean it some of this is just individual in the same way in this movie right like individuals are reacting to an environment that rewards certain things and doesn't reward other things and that you know causes them sometimes to be very much a part of a part of the machine that also uh does not benefit them so anyways Sam does get the information, tracks her down while she's uh, about to be arrested, and he has his badge, and he's like, I got her, I got her, come with me. He takes her out, and she goes into, like, her street sweeping car or whatever, and uh, he confesses his love for her, and she's obviously like, I don't know who you are. I mean, very, you know, the movie doesn't get into this too much. There's probably a lot to digest around the... uh, I mean, he's been fantasizing about about her in her dreams before he ever met her. So he is definitely coming into this relationship with "I am in love with you," and want to, and will throw away everything to be with you because you're my happiness. And she, you know, they do a good job, I think, of her characterization early on of like, "What you? Who the fuck are you? Get away from me!" Mm-hmm. Everything else, but like, I mean, like, like all these movies, eventually there is a there is a winning over, even if it's if it's temporary. Um, so they end up going to a mall and she has this package that she won't tell. And she's he's convinced that she's working with this terrorist group, like this – whatever this terrorist group. And that's why they're out to get her because he's like, well, that must be why they're out to get her as opposed to just a neighbor who was like, hey, you arrested the wrong guy. I assume you'd want to know that. Um, but he keeps assuming she's part of this terrorist group and she has a package. Uh, and they go to this mall. And he kind of confronts her and flips out at her uh, after an explosion, assuming that it, that that package was a bomb. And, and you just committed a terrorist act, only to find out the package was just a Christmas present that she brings around in case she does get hassled because she gets hassled quite often. It's a fascist police state. People are going to get hassled. And um, and uh, he decides to effectively kind of do something to be with her, not selfless, where he um, is going to go and change the records to say, hey, this person is dead. They don't exist in this police state anymore. Um, and we can we can be together uh, free. So he does all that stuff. He makes her dead in the system and then um, and then goes. They spend the night together. Uh, great line of uh, what's that line she says when hey you're dead oh uh, what care for a little necrophilia it's a, it's a oh it's incredible uh, well well delivered just just perfect uh, they wake up in the morning though again fascist police state that's monitoring all your actions they arrest both of them um, and of course and uh, uh, Jack is the one who's de- who is put to torture him. He's hooked up to this like lobotomy machine. Uh, his mom's friend. They're trying to be like, "Hey, just just go along with this. This will be fine. This is all part of the process. Uh, you know, just go along with it. You don't need to. Uh, you don't need to worry about anything. Like, and they're like, if you hold out too long, remember this could jeopardize your credit rating." 
which is another another great line. Um, and that's where Jack puts on the baby mask to torture him. And in his fantasies, the people that are pulling him down and he has to fight the bad guys all have these baby masks. And they're, they're, they're the information retrieval people. That's how they use to, to kind of separate themselves and dehumanizing. Or maybe, maybe they think it's making people comfortable because everyone loves babies and they're putting on this newborn mask. Uh, so they're about to start – and they also tell him that, uh, oh, Jill is dead, that uh, she was fleeing police custody and she uh, died. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're all wrong. I put that in the system. That was me. That's what you're arresting me for. And they're like, no, it's the damnedest thing. It's in the system twice. So you're like, oh, shit. She she was ca- – what he put in as the, as the farce ended up happening. But right as he's about to um, – We also – before they cut to black from the bedroom scene, we hear I think like a, a, a cry and a gunshot. So I think she was killed. Oh, yeah. In the – Yeah, they're not there to arrest her. She sprung her. for the window. Yeah, they, who the, who yeah. the fuck is she? Like that's the thing is like she's not part of the terrorist operation. They're, they're, they're angry at him for going out of line and doing things that they're not supposed to. Um, and uh, <laughs> Jack also has the great line. Why don't you just pretend you don't know me for a while? Um, but anyway, <laughs> so they're about to start the torture and all of a sudden um, Harry comes down with about 20 other people. Uh, and shoots shoots Michael Palin and the Jack in the head, kills him. They rescue him, and now it's a daring escape. And uh, Jill is alive, uh, and they're running through malls and they're escaping guards, and it's an exciting action movie type thing. Um, and um, there's there starts to be hints of like maybe this isn't all in the up and up, but also it's a really weird world. So who knows what? And there's been fantasy sequences like the great scene of Harry starting to get covered in newspapers and then eventually it's so so it's so it's so crazy i I love it um but he this whole sequence is 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 so much longer than i remembered and it's like 20 minutes yeah um well i mean the whole sequence of the escape and stuff like that but yeah the the slowly the it's him going through hell to get to heaven yeah um so i mean it feels earned and that's kind of the genius of the filmmaking right like this isn't them immediately getting into paradise and so you're thinking like hey something seems off here like harry disappears he gets covered in these newspapers and then is gone did you lose him in the crowd did something else nefarious happen you don't know they're fighting through all this stuff and eventually they escape and they you know like again 20 minutes later they end up at a cabin and they're and they're kissing and you know he's dreaming of himself again flying through the clouds and his, you know his fantasy is uh is uh as is come true. The other little tell here, very quickly, I think that's very clear is that the cabin they have is covered with lush greens and a forest, and we've seen enough shots of the countryside to know that that doesn't exist any fucking where near the city. So like, where did they go that that exists? Um. But uh, but yeah, then the you know it cuts to him looking dead eyed in the chair, um, and uh, commentary around man he just he 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 gave up on fighting the torture of the lobotomy or whatever was happening, and they walk out of the torture room and he is he is there while the the title song plays uh, again. It's I, you know. Definitely one of the most famous, I think. I think an ending like uh, like a Fight Club or 
uh, stuff like that that just ended up getting used a lot, right? The dream seek, the the happy ending that goes on for twenty minutes that you find it isn't happy ending, and then even that that sequence gets like added by film bros into other stuff, like you know, oh, the last twenty minutes of Taxi Driver isn't real; it's a fantasy. It's of him getting his happy ending, but you know, I, this is one of the first movies, if not the first movie, I had trouble finding. Those definitive, like, is this the first thing movie that's ever done that? But it definitely, I mean, from my experience, it feels like... It kind of has an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, where, yeah. And the moment of death, um, you know, someone has a, a runaway thing. That's right. Sorry, yeah. It's very much the the occurrence at Owl, Owl Creek. But I that wasn't really... Oh, and in that case, I guess Carnival of Souls is kind of that. But Carnival of Souls only has the nightmare portion. Like, no, she doesn't go through anything good. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> Jacob's Ladder is basically just that. <laughs> do, that's true jacob's ladder gets it starts like fairly depressing and horrifying and then it just gets more well, do you, that, like spoilers fast forward ahead 30 seconds for jacob's ladder that movie when you put it on paper is like um is very funny to think about because it starts 20 years after vietnam right and then it's his mm-hmm. life and things get crazier and crazier and then the end of the movie is that he's dying on an operating table in vietnam and this is like he lived 20 years of his life before all the demons came after him he saw the future. Uh, yeah, what a crazy movie. Um, but yeah, so like it does feel like at the very least like one of the first major representations of that idea on screen and, and how long it goes, right? Like it's 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 20 minutes of them a hard fought battle to escape only for at the end to realize that it's just, yeah, his brain, his brain dying. And, you know, in some ways, like you call it that this version and the other one that has the same ending, right, the Love Conquers All version, in a way, like, I think you can read it as potentially the only happy ending in a world like this, right? Like, not in our world, but in this world, there there really wasn't an escape for him. And he, you know... There, there was not a fight – like there was never even a concept of fighting the system or, or making things better or rehumanizing the world. Like his fantasy was to be with this this woman and escape all of this and, you know, in in this case, he, he did get that. Yeah, and, and his arrest mirror <clears throat> – there's many points that mirror the original 1984, but his arrest, like being in oh, yeah. with his lover – um, I, th- I think in the original book, I haven't read the book in like 20 years, but I think in the original book, he um, he's making love with someone of the wrong class. He's making love with a, a prole yep. uh, who's a person, a person of suspicion. Um, so he's sort of dabbling in the in the dangerous there by, by pursuing this like intimate relationship with somebody. Yeah, um, I actually and, uh, and it's been a long time since I read the book, but I did just watch the the movie for the first time. About uh, I like the movie. The genre yeah, it's really movie. good. Uh, or, I hadn't yeah. seen it ever, and I uh, I watched it like a, maybe just a year ago. So I can I can attest at least in the movie adaptation that's exactly what happened. I don't think it gets uh, enough enough cred for being like a very solid movie. It's just it's as depressing as the oh movie. it is it is bleak. <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, yeah. But, uh, so he gets chewed into. So this is a directly addressing the ending of 1984, yeah. where he gets chucked in the machine. The only real difference on the way to the it through the machine is that it's more comically absurd here right like this insurance and loan people who are like like oh do you want to take out a loan against this collateral so that you know if you do make it out on the other side of this you've at least had a good defense and 
you still get tortured and possibly murdered. Yeah. Like the, the their pitch is pretty bad. And you're you're right, Aaron. The thing that you're you're touching on. Um, oh, so yeah, I love when you said that you quoted the. If you hold out too long, it could jeopardize your credit yeah. rating. Uh, and then also the other one is um, you're running up an enormous bill by not cooperating. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, just that idea again. Um, all the all the threats exist within the world. So like, why would why would he care that this woman died? Um, human life is not is not a currency in this world. It is it is the definition of worthless. Money, credit rating, ownership, all those kind of things is the currency in the world. So that's yeah. that's what they're motivating him with. And, and and what is his rebellion, right? Like he he pokes around to try and find this woman and he – like what is his crime, I should say? I mean I his guess changing the record. Yeah, he's changing the record. He's not going to work. Um, he helps get her out of a pinch um, once or twice. Um and uh, but that's the thing he's doing his, something he's not supposed to so he's labeled as a terrorist right so like, yeah like his but he's not he's not blowing up any buildings or doing any terrorist shit until he gets to full-on dream state when he blows up the place he works yeah. um, which is fantastic yeah. like he's like oh this place is a this place is a, a castle of, 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 of awfulness of fascism and he doesn't want a reality without jill he opts for the dream with her instead of the harsh reality without her. Um, he doesn't want to just confess quickly and maybe, you know, pull some political connections to get pushed back into the system. Like, he may not actually be doomed. Like, that's the weird thing. that the well, Yeah, they want to say is, they have his like, mom's he, friend there. It's his friend that's doing it. Like, that's probably to have some familiarity to coercing, you know, the what what would have clearly been lies, right? Because, like, there's no way that Jack would have accepted I just liked the girl and I wanted to be with her. He would have confessed to things that he didn't do or named random people that he knew as part of the conspiracy because again if you're engaged if you're doing anything against the system by definition you are a terrorist to them and if you're a terrorist then you're working with the terrorists like it's just it's propaganda 101 when it comes to like anyone who doesn't follow isn't conforming is a terrorist yeah and they can get your body i mean the whole point of the ending right is they can get your body but if you keep your dreams safe and you keep your your intimacy safe and you keep the the pieces of you that's that that are you safe you don't have to give up everything oh, like yeah. you can you can you you can uh, win in a sense like you said it you called it like an optimistic ending this is the only movie i can think of where like the ending actually does feel optimistic because he has trans transmuted a horrifying nightmare for uh, a real a reality that's um, a, a dream reality. Um, this movie is not so much about reality and dreams as as it is about nightmare and yeah. dreams. Which it, um, that and it's this triumphant. Go ahead. It's this triumphant big ending where at first it's Jonathan Price just very softly singing the the theme song. Uh, in a very like pretty and heartbreaking way and you like oh this is how the movie ends it's just like a broken man and then the music swells up into this like world music rendition of it with a full choir yeah and that's like your indication like he's fully out man like whether they like it or not he's gone he's in the wind like he he escaped and he's the, with the place he has this he has this mini house out in the country um he's uh this is all so much more painful 
um that that it's all so much more painful um sorry this would be so much more painful if he allowed them to take everything away from him but he he at least got to yeah because keep this dream and make the dream reality yeah because what's the other ending right like he he gives up and he goes back to work and like the the one i mean you know it it, it is a it is a bleak ending but it at the end of the day it's about someone who you know what what possibility does he have to fight the system which actually just really quickly reminds me of uh something we didn't talk about in the battle uh for brazil which is that Due to those themes and that and exactly what we just talked about, Terry Gilliam started comparing himself to 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 Jonathan Price and, you know, say this is just like the movie he made about what they're doing to him. And they they won't let him be free and they won't let him live, uh, live his life. And which leads to the one very uh, hilarious uh, Scheinberg quote that, like, does feel a little bit like, again, no heroes and villains, some people that did good, some people that did bad. Uh, some people that, you know, did things that you can have uh, mixed opinions about, but my favorite, like, uh, not, not a lot of self-awareness in Reagan's America quote is from Scheinberg, who's like, he kept, uh, it's an audio recording, so it's, it's really him. He's like, he kept saying, this is just like his movie, that he's the protagonist in the movie. Uh, his movie's about a tyrannical government. I work for a studio, a corporation, uh. <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think there's some things Scheinberg you did that were a-okay and i think you're definitely missing something there <laughs> oh yeah a- 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 absolutely um it's it's just a messier more complicated story that like i at the end of the movie i'm i'm grateful that gilliam got to keep his dream but I'm not like, oh, he got to keep his dream and those 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 studio head monsters didn't take it away for like instead I'm like Yeah, they keep releasing it, this. Like they're giving rights yeah. to it. I mean and, and the ending of that thing is like them going, Hey, that you know, it was pr- I thought it was a pretty good movie. Maybe not, you know, and then it made money and like, you know, it's the fact that everyone the the one of the fun things about the documentary and I assume the book, I haven't read the book, but everyone participates. Everyone gives on like the studio heads and they're like, yeah, well, here's what was going on. So it it does have some fun uh, perspectives. Again, I was hyper focused when I was 19 on one perspective, but it's definitely it's definitely an interesting story. But yeah, I mean, Peter, what's I mean, the first thing I texted you after finishing this movie, it'd probably been 10 years since I'd seen it. Like like a lot of your first faves, um, I, you know, I watched it 20 to 30 times over a five year period when I had all the time in the world to watch movies. And it becomes something that like I just haven't revisited because I to your point, I don't have as much time or uh to rewatch movies and like Brazil and this type of movie, it hasn't reached the age where like, oh, I'm showing this to my kids now because my kids are still a little too too young for even the Love Conquers All Scheinberg cut, Peter. Um, but uh, but yeah, the second we, this was over, I'm like, holy shit, yeah, you know it's a good movie, Peter. Brazil, great movie. I mean this this has always been near the top of my like yeah all time favorite list, and it it still is. It's it's a fantastic movie, and it's one. As every movie we've covered this month has unfortunately, like, you know, really hit home, it is one whose relevancy has not diminished in any capacity. Like, what it is commenting on were the seeds or the beginnings of a new golden age of capitalism mixed with, like, um, 
uh, uh, you know, fascism and, and religion that like continues unabated for the most part to today. And that they even note that there's a, there's some great signs about um, consumers for Christ. That's the name of the church. Yeah. Um, I mean, it it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, incredibly resonant. All those stupid memes about how like, wow, idiocracy predicted our future. Um, and there's some, Idiocracy is a terrible movie with a terrible message and it absolutely did not predict anything. Uh, but yeah, I mean, people should look closer at uh, Brazil, I think. Good good movie yeah. is my point. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, really quickly, I uh, just want to touch on something because we haven't talked about um, Jill too, too yeah. much. I absolutely love that we, we you, you touched on it earlier, but like, I absolutely love that he has this irrational obsession with her and she's just a, so indifferent to him at first because he's just a weirdo. Oh, yeah. Particularly a weirdo who works for the government that she hates. Um, yeah, it's great that they didn't try to do some like. She boots him out of the van. Yeah, yeah, yeah literally. Yeah, he's hanging on the edge. Like her reaction to everything is, is pretty good. Like I get that part of the movie needs to have a quick turn into. All right, well. Maybe this guy is all right. Um, but I think they really hold on the like, hey, you're a weird asshole. And then later on, like, you're a weird judgmental asshole who's accusing me of a terrorist bombing. And you just met me two hours ago, you lunatic. So I, I, I think I think it it like it handles all that pretty well. I think it yeah it navigates from from that point to her seeing the bravery and the sweetness and the dream like portion of him later yeah. on when she gets to know him as as a positive and I do kind of love that it's like and that's it's not like a love for the ages or something but Jill just represents something in him in his head and then she ends up being a real person she ends up being a yeah. real person he he takes her from a statue of an angel to turning her into something more real um and i i love that and particularly the dream versus reality or nightmare versus reality piece of this just want to touch on the set design oh, yeah. there's an artificiality to this movie that i absolutely love everything feels like you can knock it down with a few hammer strokes like the 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 cityscapes all look like dollhouses. There's even a fake out shot where you think you're looking at like a nuclear reactor apartment building. Um, but it's um, a miniature for what it's supposed to look like in the future. Um, so you're like, that's horrifying. And then you see the reality and you're like, the reality is worse. Um, this this idea that like, you know, this it's, this is all fake. This is just like a shitty little uh, front uh, to hide a, a, a awful interior um is 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 really uh fantastic for a movie that's entirely about um you know tearing down uh these these uh, facades of uh these facades of fascism and showing them for what they they really are um aaron uh do you have any other sort of final moments you want to touch on for me no i no i think you know i i I mean, this is this is probably the first month that we've ever done. Don't quote me on this. That I think all these movies are are five stars. Like, I I love all these movies. This was such a fun month to do, and one that was a really really great. Like after our kind of break of doing, we love to watch. While um, you know, I had uh, my or my wife and I had a baby, and we had all those other banked episodes to do. Like to get to come back and do like. Repo Man and They Live. I mean, these are all like movies that I would watch at the drive of head. They're all five star movies. They're all my top 100 list. And like, and they all, even though they're very different, um, you know, from a genre standpoint or a tone or stuff like that, they all are just like these, these, these perfect objects at what, what they're doing. 
Uh, and all with one very central thesis, which is uh, fuck, fuck Ronald Reagan. Uh, and the other thing that like it, I think, you know, um, you know, Gilliam saying that he wanted to make 1984's reaction to 1984 is a really good soundbite and, and it works well. Like you, you see that done well, but also as someone who, as I mentioned, I just saw the first 1984 movie uh, last year for the first time. And while, while I really liked it quite a lot, like it is really good. He he really improves at least on the the visually the source material. I think a little bit by the thing that 1984 predicts, and I think actually gets wrong about our era, is this idea of hyper competency. the 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 government of 1984 is relatively competent. They're liars, but their fascism is effective. They have. You know, they have the right systems in place. Things work. There's this clean – the movie does this really well. Like there's this clean stone um, quality to it that there's no – you know, there's not – it's not decorative. It's not a fancy aesthetic. It is It is dour. And that makes the film a very bleak watch. And I think uh, both aesthetically but also tonally, Gilliam really gets into this what's – that kind of absurdity brought from Monty Python that – the thing about fascism isn't it's like perfect organization for the most part overwhelming uh, power. It's that the people in charge and the systems that they construct are falling apart at the seams. The 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 techniques that they use to um, to usually like subjugate a populace is not hyper competency and hyper power. It is mindless bullshit that us is like you know. Uh, recently evolved apes or whatever are very susceptible to. And so the tricks of fascism are very simple um, and it can get you to ignore, you know, human rights violations, the dignity of life, literally what you're spending your day on. Peter, your call out on like the fact that everyone is very concerned about things and they're the wrong things that don't matter and all the thing, the right things that do better, no one cares about. I mean, that's a reality that I think that we, we are seeing – more and more all the time in our in our own in our own country and and that's something that Gilliam gets more right than Orwell like the systems don't have to be perfect they don't have to be overpowering they can be a sack of shit t- a shit tied together with a you know musty masking tape or whatever but if they do it in the right way it will distract enough people to make to to make their system work right like the system in Brazil doesn't work in the sense that the ducks even pump out stuff or that anyone knows how to fix anything or that the processes are happening. But the point isn't that the processes are happening to their satisfaction. The point is that the processes are happening. People are spending their time on this. They've distracted everyone. And and that is a better representation of, of how fascism uh, it basically makes a susceptible populace like uh, you know, domesticates them or whatever to to the fascist message more than like overpowering hyper competency that we see in 1984. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really well put. Um, the yeah, it's really well put, and it, 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 this is a movie that's sort of giving you an escape. I think to connect with that, like the, this is a movie that's helping give you an escape. And I, I, what I think is interesting about this movie. Repo Man and RoboCop is those are all movies that take place within the system and are about people who are propagating the system 
trying to find their rebellions and trying to find their path forward, um, which I think is more relatable. Like they live is like such a power fantasy because it's like somebody who is barely in the system, basically giving up on the system on a whim and smashing it. Like there's almost nothing tying Nada down. Right. But like um, Sam is like, He's got he's got friends and influences and things pushing him upward towards, you know, the next stage of of, uh, of bureaucracy, um, trying to get him to continually reinvest in the system. And all he wants is is to be in yeah. love and to daydream. And, and there's these there's this dream that he has, which we haven't talked about the dreams too much, but I want to touch on some of the imagery. These dreams that he has where he's this flying angel with a sword. And these pillars of stone are firing through this beautiful countryside um, and this, to, to sort of represent this like dawning march of progress at the expense of the natural and the beautifully alive. And it's, um, it's this idea of capitalism and, and, and fascism uh, persevering over people and intimacy and the things that make us alive. Um, these are things that are not pushing forward people people's humanity in this case. These are things that are actively trying to smash down their humanity or or fit what is left of your humanity in these nice little boxes. So you, you smile the right way when you receive or you give a Christmas present. And to sort of wrap the month up, like I do think that like the consumerism is like the, the first stage to understanding that these systems are, are not here to, to make you happy. Because as you get older and you realize like you could probably rack up rack up a lot of money on a credit card and, and, you know, buy all the video games and all the candy and all the the shit you would have wanted when you were eight. Um, You could probably buy thousands of dollars of that and you won't end up happy. Um, That the, the value in those things is, is, um, is, is in what you share with people, the common intimate connections that you build with people. And to connect that to our overall theme of the month, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher we're both vile people for many reasons, but the thing that makes me genuinely pity them and see them as these pathetic little creatures is that there were times in their life where they were face to face with, literally face to face with the like personal losses of people due to their policies, people that they loved and people that they cherished and valued disappearing in front of them because they their policies were inhuman and their policies destroyed humanity they weren't just inhuman for themselves they were inhuman to to in an offensive creeping sort of cancerous way and the, the the story that i always come back with ronald reagan particularly you know close out this month is the story of how he dealt with him and nancy dealt with the death of, of rock hudson they spent they spent Tens of thousands of deaths of AIDS before and didn't recognize it. They made they had their press conference. Their press secretary made jokes about it during press conferences. They Ronald Reagan himself wouldn't even talk about it, even using the offensive grids terminology like Ronald Reagan wouldn't talk about it. He ignored it. He wanted to let gay people die because he knew that. His philosophy did not jive well with with gay people, even though him and Nancy had personal gay friends, including Rock Hudson. And as Rock Hudson died a hard death, like the early years, particularly of AIDS, it's, it's not a good way to go. It's it's not it's you don't just w- not wake up one day. It's a slow draining disease. Rock Hudson 
died with a, and all that Ronald Reagan did was offer like, oh, I, I can get you a really good doctor, a really good private White House doctor to treat you. Um, and he played hush hush with it. The story eventually got out. He could use that opportunity to say, I just had a personal experience that changed my humanity. It woke up something in me. It made me feel again. And it didn't. He just kept going on abusing gay people indefinitely. He didn't change his policies a fucking yeah. wink. The man is a fucking monster. Yep. And the fact that he died surrounded by loved ones and not being being in prison uh, means that this world just doesn't it doesn't always have justice. The world rarely has yep. justice. Him 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 choosing this vile vile uh, lack. You say ethical system, but it's like a lack of ethical yep. system over. People that he loved dying in front of his face it just shows you the inhumanity. Well, of Peter, it would be bad politically and like, for him if he. It would be bad politically for him to recognize that gay people yeah. were dying and straight people. Um, uh, but he, uh, throughout all that, he 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 stayed the stayed the course as a as a vile little little pathetic monster. And I I pity I pity him and Margaret Thatcher. For, for that, that that they were so willing to destroy their human, humanity. They were so willing to destroy a dream of goodness that they took people down with them. Yeah. They, they tried to make it seductive for their countries and that can never the be forgiven. The compartmentalization of like, well, I'm a good person. So even if I do vile, terrible things, you know, I've already defined myself as a good person and how that allows um, – allows that kind of like again like the the no guilt like yeah i'm sorry bud sorry you're dying i'm, I'm gonna continue to vilify you and everyone and like you because it's convenient for me politically and somehow like i'm i see myself still as a hero and a good guy fighting real evil i mean i think uh yeah it's not a new uh it's not a new thing that's happened in societies or humanity but i i it, i it's one i recognize more and more frequently with the you know the last few 10 five years we've we've lived in so you know i again reagan piece of shit margaret thatcher piece of shit um you know the the things that they did to compartmentalize um them in their own heads um as as heroes fighting the good fight um is uh something that's incredibly common and still goes on yeah. today peter we have a very fun change of pace we are doing our i think our third or fourth supersized month uh, and this one's going to get pretty supersized because Peter, in this double month, size does matter, which was the plithy uh, attempt for the Godzilla American remake from 1998 to show it was better than Jurassic Park. Um, the original Ishiro Honda movie doesn't mention a huge hog at all. And it does not imply that Godzilla has a yeah. He's all hog, bumpy down there, even a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But the Godzilla in Roland Emmerich's that lady fucks because she has kids. Yeah, you don't see Sarah, you don't see Sarah Zawa in uh, Godzilla going like, man, if the hands are that big, <laughs> what's he, what's uh, what's what's he packing? Uh, but yeah, we're doing we're doing Godzilla is uh, something that's been a, uh, essentially a lifelong love of mine. It's 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 almost a weird corollary to our sidecast uh, Star Trek because um, 
a couple things I was obsessed with, like in both both I'd say like uh, you know childhood, but especially in junior high and stuff like that, were uh, Star Trek, Godzilla, and uh, James Bond movies. Uh, just because I think there was a lot of content, and that just seemed like amazing to me. I wanted to catch them all because I was a little bit too young, uh, too old for Pokemon. So that was my catch them all was Godzilla, Bond. That kind of stuff. But uh, Peter has seen only a little bit. So we're doing a big double month for Godzilla. Only a little bit, and this is very relative. I've seen like six to eight of these movies. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot. It's a lot of, a lot of these movies. So we're going to spend the next uh, leisurely nine weeks going through Godzilla and Godzilla-related movies. We're going to do a mini month in September for – might be some side stuff, Star Trek, that kind of thing. And then we're going to resume with uh, October, back on track for the calendar month. But we have a lot of fun stuff planned. So we're doing really quickly uh, – next week we're doing the original – uh, 1954 uh, Japanese uh, Ishiro Honda Godzilla movie. Uh, I did watch the full King of the Monsters version, which I had seen many times as a kid. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, but again, in our back-to-back watch a good version and then a shitty version, uh, that has been done for next week. Then we – this has been – we were trying to figure out what to do. The Showa era as a whole, which essentially goes from that movie until 1973, it's a ton of movies – that it's, it's so many movies, it's almost divided into its two separate eras. So we're actually going to do two episodes of double doubling up. The first era of the Showa era is uh, we're going to do King Kong versus Godzilla and Invasion of the Astro uh, Monster uh, with uh, returning guest Zach Gruton, who was on our was our first guest that we ever had and joined us on Godzilla versus Sedora or Godzilla versus the Smog Monster on our fifth episode. So uh, excited to have him back talk Godzilla. We're doing the second half of the Showa era with Godzilla versus Gigan and a Terror of Mechagodzilla. We're doing uh, then a little uh, other uh, Showa era, but not Toho Studios uh, kaiju movie uh, that was taking some of Godzilla stuff in its own crazy beast called the X from Outer Space uh, with uh, guest Brandon Lede. Uh, then we're going into the Hisei uh, period, which is my favorite Godzilla run. Uh, but we're doing uh, King uh, Ghidorah versus Godzilla and Godzilla versus Destroya. My favorite movie from that era is a completely out of print. And as much as I'd like to make Peter, Peter's already giving me a lot of flexibility in this double month as a whole. I don't think uh, spend three hundred dollars to watch one Godzilla movie is in is is in our is in our show's budget for this. But uh, I'll probably talk about how much I love Godzilla versus Biolanti. But the, the, all these are really great. Uh, then we're gonna, just going to do one for the Millennium Series. The Millennium Series is not as connected. They're all almost their own like sequel to the original Godzilla in their own way. Uh, and we're going to do the only Godzilla movie I've never seen uh, that is also probably the best representation of, of that, of the Millennium Series from what I understand, which is Godzilla Final Wars. Uh, then we're going to do another, uh, Amer- you know, era specific, uh, kaiju movie with, uh, and doing one of our other loves, which is of course, uh, Del- uh Guillermo del Toro movies and do Pacific Rim. Uh, then we're going to do, uh, the American, we're not going to do 1998. I don't want to do it. It's, it's, it's literally a painful movie. Um, it, not in a fun way. Uh, we're going to do Godzilla 2014, uh, and maybe potentially we'll sneak in the sequel to that one, Godzilla King of the Monsters. Um, and then we're going to round it out with, I think one of, uh, both of our favorites and one that you've seen Peter, which is, um, the, the Rewa series launch, uh, Shin Godzilla, which came out in 2016. It's technically now there's four, four entries in the, in the Rewa series. Uh, but three of those are animated that I've heard are not, not very good. So still the only live action entry 
in in that series and the uh the only one since uh Godzilla Final Wars I think was 2004 so essentially it's been 18 years and that's the only so very very long break but they delivered a fantastic movie so we'll be ending on a high note since a lot of Godzilla a lot of monsters um I'm really excited for the month I think Peter is slightly skeptical that he's going to not only have to do it for 9 weeks but watch like 14 movies in those 9 weeks Peter how you feeling I'm excited. This has been your uh, you you planned this out. I think like a year or two ago. We almost did it last summer, and then I kind of forget what we did. We pivoted though. Uh, we did Mike Bignola and Del Toro uh, in Hollywood. Del Toro in Hollywood. Yeah. So this will, yeah. So Pacific Rim will be a good. Do you remember those like tens of thousands of pages? <laughs> yeah, we read? The fact that we would forget that we did that when uh, yeah, making you watch a, a couple extra movies is nothing compared to like, hey, let's read 30,000 pages of an entire comic book series starting nine months before we record. Uh, I mean, again, uh, I, I love that idea, too. I was thrilled to get through those 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 books. Yeah. It was so fun. We got to we I especially it was so fun. I, I it was fun to like check in and be like, "Ooh, are you on this one?" Yeah, I, especially because I got ahead of you for a lot of stuff. So for which was which was kind of fun just because you you had read those a long time ago. So yeah, so I'm really excited. So we're gonna start with uh, a good one, and I I can assure you, uh, going right from four five star movies to another five star movie with 1954's Godzilla. Uh, until then, remember, we're all in this together. Brazil. Where hearts were entertained in June We stood beneath an ember moon And softly whispered one day soon We kissed and clung together then The day of the morning found me miles away. With still a million things to say. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs>